0: This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be a giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast everyone. We are in the studio. PMC uh, and I are in the studio. I'm looking at his beautiful face, fresh from a ship, (laughs) fresh from a trip to the shore. I I don't know if that's a Freudian slip on my part, but he looks very. (laughs) He's glowing. He's got. He's very sun kissed. PMC, say hello to the people out there.
1: Hello, hello, hello. I'm sure you all think fondly of your many travels to the
0: Jersey Shore. Everyone in our audience from all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, PMC and I are in New Jersey, but there is an an origin point for Jersey, which I believe is in the United Kingdom. Am I correct? Guest, who I've yet to name.
2: Uh, yes and no. Um, it's uh, it's uh, the, the the Queen. Uh, the Queen is the head of state, but I think it's technically a different a different country. I think the UK just does its defence and foreign policy.
0: <laughs>
2: there you go. Is there a city
0: in the UK called Jersey?
2: There's an island. It's a, it's, it's, it's it's an it's island. An island. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, uh, uh, and that's why, that's why it's a separate, uh, it's a separate place, okay. uh, separate and distinct from the United Kingdom, I think. Don't quote me on that. I'm you know, not a constitutional expert. <laughs>
0: no, nor am I. No one is. Now, before we get too far <laughs> into the conversation, let me introduce you to our guest. Uh, we are speaking with Thaliarchus, Mecca Luminary on Twitter, and we're very, very happy to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here and, uh, uh, speaking to you from, from across the Atlantic.
0: What time is it there? If you don't mind me, it's it's e- early evening. PMC and I are recording in the earlyish afternoon.
2: That's right. So it's it's about six thirty in the evening. We've got I'm, um and so the so the UK sort of uh, technically though we have a mild climate. We're north of Winnipeg, so we get very late um, kind of uh, spring and summer evenings. So we still have quite a lot of light outside and and. Uh, Everyone's enjoying the fact that it's not raining because you've got to take advantage of these opportunities when you can when you live here.
0: Sometimes I jokingly chastise PMC for talking about the weather, but I'm, I'm going to talk about the weather right now because I, I spent some time in the UK. I very much miss that climate. I love the rain. You, could see, you can see a picture of me. I am very pale. I am very Irish. And I miss those re- really overcast days, 60s, slight rain throughout the day. I hear, though, of course, like everywhere, it's been getting warmer during the summers.
2: Yeah, yeah, we've been having hotter summers too, um, uh, and that certainly does make you appreciate the the cooler bits when when you can get them.
0: So, Thal, you're a certifiable fan of giant robots. I think that's safe to say. Softball question here: Where did your love of mecha begin? What were some of the, your formative works? So, those two questions to start us off.
2: Yeah, yeah, great. Well, that's and 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 the the, the honest answer is. And I I don't have a completely nailed down answer for like, why, why do I like giant robots? Um, I mean, if you, if you really dig back into my past, so I grew up um, in a city called Southampton on the Mm. south coast of England. It's not anywhere near Northampton because that would make too much sense. Um, And uh, I grew up sort of near the docks, Southampton is a big, big commercial port and you would see all these big sort of ships and big cranes where i grew up there there's this kind of row of cranes on the horizon big industrial sort of machines and and maybe maybe just maybe there's something about growing up in that sort of environment and that just being the background of of one's life that that left me sort of more attuned to kind of big big impressive things i mean maybe so um uh but also i think growing up um I was uh, I, so I grew up in a house with no television. Um, not, not I hasten to add, um, because because my parents had some kind of they, they weren't raising me in a sort of puritan household of no, <laughs> um, with no technology. But but we just didn't have very much money. And and in, in the UK you you pay a licensing fee to, to have a television um, each year. Uh, it's what funds the BBC.
3: Oh, um, I didn't know
2: that. Uh, but um, go ahead if you, if you want to come in there.
1: I mean so I'm gonna ask a curious question because I always love to turn uh, things to video games and Mm. uh, I've learned growing up in America is something I never heard of but apparently is deeply foundational for a lot of people my age and older coming from the UK is the ZX Spectrum Mm. Uh, and I I couldn't tell if that was like a, a console or a PC would you have to pay a licensing fee for the ZX Spectrum I assume no because it couldn't hook up to the BBC
2: the thing the thing you're paying for is the access to broadcast television so so yeah yeah um but that's a yeah great question so i um you know i kind of grew up knowing quite a lot of people who were familiar with the spectrum Mm -hmm. because you know i was also a nerd so i knew a lot of nerds but but i you know came, came from a house with um with without one so i i just did a lot of reading um and then um we had a, an Amiga A twelve hundred, so I, I didn't play console games. So I played sort of things, things you could get hold of on on, on the Amiga, um, and um, I have always really enjoyed science fiction um, and and space opera. You know, uh, let, let's let's bring those together and say that there are there are some things said in space that are not trying to be speculative or predictive or or uh, whatever, but are having fun with, with with being in space, and that's a good thing too. Um, and I've always also enjoyed, among other kinds of narrative, narratives of kind of conflict and, and war stories and that sort of thing, and I'm sure that has a has an element, has a has a role to play. So um uh um there's something I think about the the giant robot as an external manifestation of heroism or of villainy or of something in between, um, that that definitely speaks to me. And um a lot of these these narratives are they're analogous, um, there, there are moments in them that are analogous to the kinds of um, the kinds of sort of, sort of ba- battle poetry is something that I'm quite interested in my, in my day job where I study and, and, and research early, early literature um, and something like the alliterative Mortartha or Lachman's Brute so relatively obscure um, uh, uh, early English literature uh, I find sort of the the ways that humans write about war quite interesting um um uh without I should say you know uh, just to, just to be completely clear, I'm not like a, a fan of war war mm-hmm. generally bad thing um, <laughs> um but I don't know if um, if either of you saw the 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 there was a a meme being passed around the other day, let me see if I can find a, a copy of it um i just I'll put it in the chat for you. Um, yeah, um, this uh, my my anti imperialism leaving my body when a fighter plane or tank looks cool, which I, I <laughs> thought you know
3: I, I never, yeah um, no, that that's seems kind like of a, where I am. With yeah, this. that's like a
1: <laughs> sort of a sequel to the uh, the one about the therapist and the right of kings. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, mm, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> now, do you have any like favorite mecca like desert island pick? What are you mm, bringing with you mm. to your desert island mecca wise?
2: Yeah, so this is really good, and and you asked about sort of good, what 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 kind of works are formative, so. And this 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 hopefully cottons on to where where I was going with with the conditions in which I grew up. So, in my late mid to late teens, we got hold of a, a computer with a DVD player, which meant for the first time I could watch things. Um, uh, and um, I started kind of rifling through. There was a nearby independent DVD rental shop. You know, the, the brief period of time in human history where there could be a DVD rental store. Um, and um, uh because they were independent and and whoever was running it had independent ideas they had a lot of anime and i kind of just stumbled on on anime and i watched um i watched a few things that that i enjoyed but didn't make me go oh i have to i mean i have to hunt down more of this so you know i watched uh the 1995 ghost in the shell which i thought was fantastic still think it's fantastic um and i watched i watched cowboy bebop you know parodically kind of obviously the thing someone would watch um and then I stumbled on of all things Martian Success in adehko, which is a very silly you know i mean very silly light hearted show in some ways um uh but that was the show that made me an anime fan i mean that was that was the thing I watched where i thought this is this is knowingly very silly, it's knowingly quite odd, and I don't think I could have found something like this elsewhere um uh it, 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 you know it's not it's not this kind of finely honed perfection like like the 1995 Ghost in the Shell, um, but but it just super super interesting. So that was the show that I watched that made me think I must you know whatever this anime stuff is, I must go and find more of it, and and it ought to have giant robots in it because <laughs> this one does. Um, uh, so those were those were really you know well, that in particular was a really significant thing for me. Um, and then other you know other things I saw in the first couple of years of of being kind of really pursuing anime rather than stumbling into it. Um uh were um you know, things that I remember, things that stuck stood, stood out were um uh let's see, I saw well, I saw Code Gas, um, which hit hit at exactly the right time. I saw the first season only. Mm-hmm. And I was in my I was in my late teens when I was kind of at the right age to be yes. like, you know, this is this is not the greatest thing ever, but you know, I love these twists and and I, I, I for my money the first season of Code Gas is 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 better than the second. And at the time, that was that was all you could see, and of course it ended on on you know with all all these uh, unresolved mysteries. And in some ways, unresolved mysteries are are more engaging than 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 resolutions. So, um, real quick, are there fans out
0: there uh, lobbying and like actively arguing that R two is better than Lelouch of the Rebellion?
2: I have never heard that argument (laughs) before. Yeah, I. Neither have I. I mean, I, I, I've heard people make the case that they're equally bad, or that you know they're they're basically the same. Um, but yeah, I've never, I've never, you know, the the the, the R two Defender has never logged on in my in, <laughs> <laughs> in my perception. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick,
0: I, I, you mentioned Oshi and Ghost in mm. the Shell, and when you're describing your childhood home and location, you're talking about the cranes and you're talking about the dock, and I was thinking about. Urban decay and melancholy, and a mm, still frame yeah. from something like Pat Labour 2 and I, I thought there's a very nice description. And I could see why you yeah. might gravitate to work like works like that.
2: Definitely, yeah, yeah. And actually, Southampton is um, one of the locations of the UK. So that you know, Japan and the UK are the 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 two unsinkable aircraft carriers for the us on on either side of of eurasia right so so uh, and and southampton is where you know a lot of the materiel and the troops for for d-day were, were stored and then and then were sent to to normandy so that the primary school or, or elementary school i think in, in american english that that i went to um one of the classrooms had a beautiful painting on on the wall um and it was actually on the wall so so gi's had been billeted there during the war and one of them had just painted onto the brickwork and the and the school, when they came back after the war, they, they put glass over it and, and 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 kept it and no one knew who who, who did it. It was just sort of kind of anonymous um, woman in a beautiful dress, which may well have been the sort of thing that was on their minds when they're stuck in stuck in some benighted school in, in England. But um <laughs> It reminds uh, me of like um, a Salinger so- short story or something yeah yeah um but yeah and 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 that must be i mean um the the British film Institute in London just recently had a, a season of anime and they showed ghost in the Shell and the two pat labor films um and I went down to london to to see them in the cinema, which was incredible and um and absolutely the 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 unreal city sequence in Pat Labour two with all those dock kind of dock lands I and mean, that's 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 the kind of environment I grew up in yeah yeah totally <laughs> um uh yeah so um uh, so, Kogiass Ass was big for me, and I went and watched Infinite Revias, which I would would happily defend, I think. Same director. Um, uh, and That's Eureka the 7, hip-hop Macros show, right? Plus. Sorry, Karen?
0: Uh, Infinite Revias is the hip-hop show, right? The first Goro Tanaguchi-directed yeah, work?
2: Yeah, and people normally call it so like Lord of the Flies crossed with the Hunt for Red October in space. Um, Interesting. I've
0: uh, recently yeah. wrapped up finishing teaching Lord of the Flies. I never once thought I could potentially hook in Infinite Revias, the '90s anime classic, into my curriculum.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is sort of about the same the same a, a similar premise though though, and it's much more optimistic than Lord of the Flies. Um, but um, uh, Macross Plus was was a big thing for me when I first saw it. Um, uh, Magic Kaiser, Mellow Link, Votoms, Gal Geiger, um, uh Eureka Seven, Flag, Legend of the Galactic Heroes. These are the, and these are the things I was watching the first couple of years as an anime fan. The kind of my last year of secondary school, um, and then and then working, and then going to university. The kind of first first year of my undergraduate studies. Um yeah, that that's the sort of world that I was I was inhabiting, the anime kind of the anime that were floating around in my head back then. And that's probably um the the you know the background that's formed formed my tastes. Um
0: Let me also say before we change topics that I'm glad to have a fan of thirteen sentinels on the pod, because we now outnumber the thirteen sentinels haters on the pod two to one. I always feel like I'm putting on putting PMC on trial for something, but I know <laughs> Am I correct in this, style that you are a fan of Thirteen Sentinels? I know you are because I've seen you tweet about it. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I, 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 and I would never blame anyone for for bouncing off Thirteen Sentinels. I think, I think PMC can 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 feel like you know it's not it, that game has a very specific niche that it's it's kind of designed for. But for me, yeah, Thirteen Sentinels was really um, it's the first. Uh, so one of the interesting, I suppose, things that that, that I find interesting. About my experience of computer games is that I experience a lot of computer games sort of history backwards mm-hmm. because of having grown up without a console and so on. For me, everything's kind of fresh. So, um, uh, so this is the first thing made by VanillaWare that I ever, I'd, I had ever played, and the um, you know the graphics kind of blew me away, and the gameplay was great fun, and the and I think the the thing about it that worked for me was that I'm not I I can enjoy a kind of richly layered characterization. Um, when i want to but i'm quite happy to have fairly thin characters and lots of them and that's sort of the world you know the characters the 30 sentinels are um you know thinner and you spend less time with each one but the way they they interact is sort of what you're what you're playing for but but yeah i think pmc should feel totally justified in mm-hmm. in it not being you know his, his kind of game yeah. i wouldn't i wouldn't want everyone in the world to be forced <laughs> yeah yeah
1: no i i think you, you already kind of hit on you know where i am which is just that i never really jived with the Uh, the amount of characterization or where those threads went and so that's you know that's a pretty big part of the work
2: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah totally yeah that's completely legitimate yeah
0: yeah. what about gundam though thal so being the topic of our conversation i think it's pertinent to ask when you first interacted with this franchise that's now 40 years old like what are some of your favorite series and you know shout out some of your least favorites too
2: yeah so, so yeah um let's see um so you know i i I'd spent, you know, a year or two watching shows of giant robots in them. And Gundam was this kind of big, you know, people would mention it and you were aware of it as this kind of hulking, intimidatingly big sort of collection of stuff. Um, uh, It would have been, yes, it was the first term of my undergraduate um, degree. So it would have been uh, an autumn. Um, uh, And um, I watched, it was Gundam Seed was the first Gundam title that I saw. Um, And... You know a lot of people completely understandably have have nothing good to say about seed and i i too don't have a lot <laughs> that's good to say about it but you know it was and i have i suppose i have a kind of lingering affection for it because it was the first thing from gundam i saw and um uh, i i would cautiously make a case for seeds music and some of its mechanical designs and i think it has some pretty dynamic storyboarding though not actually very much animation <laughs> in its action sequences um, in other ways, looking back on it, um, I think one of the interesting things about Seed to me is that uh, it takes kind of some of the premises of, of the original Gundam and updates them, uh, and, it, and it tries to go for a bit more kind of military realism. Um, but because it's it's a bit more aimed, pitched maybe at slightly older teenagers, the effect is actually interestingly narrowing to my mind. Like the you wind up with a show that has a narrower audience like a big audience but but the the original gundam having revisited it in the last couple of years it's super accessible i mean it's 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 very broad in the kind of range of people it's pitching to which might be partly to to do with television around 1980 i mean it's it's there's one television (laughs) like often in the household and um uh you know it's it's the family who might be watching television or at least at least if the kids are watching television maybe someone else is around and able to have a view on whether those kids should be watching television and so on and so on. Um, I don't know whether that's that's the reason or not. But yeah, the, the original Gundam is this really open show that may or may not work for people, but you can really show it to a wide, wide range of people and people will kind of get it and be like, okay, so it's a war story, they're on the run, people are chasing their ship, there are refugees. Okay, I can, I can kind of follow this. Seed is very much like, I'm 14 and life sucks <laughs> and you know um uh, and i'm special and I, I get to pilot the robot um so yeah in in retrospect um uh, I, I don't have the respect for for seed that i probably had the moment i was watching it but it was it was the thing that got me interested and um the next thing i watched was was the o8 mst um and that was what led me into into the universal century um, and uh, what a, you know, what a great place to start. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed the O8 MS team, and 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 still do when I when I go back to it. So, so that was how I got into Gundam. I, and my um, my favourites are t- Turn A is is not just my favourite Gundam title; it's it's my favourite anime. Um, I'm I'm rewatching it for the unteenth time at the moment with a friend who who hasn't seen it before, and it's been a real pleasure. Um, uh, to, to my great relief, she she too has really been enjoying it. Um, uh, um, so yeah, Turn A is is a big thing for me. Um, uh, the, I I have a soft spot for the original for the 1979 Gundam. You know, having having seen it again in the last few years with with the same friend, um, that was it was really nice going back and and saying actually, you know, I, I this was actually better than I remembered it being. Like it's not, it's not perfect. It's actually quite messy, but but like, there's loads of really good stuff in here. Um, Shards Counterattack is a film that I think. I have a troubled relationship with, but every time I watch it, I come away thinking that it's better than I thought it was the last time, which I think I call this the Shars counterattack opinion ratchet (laughs) each time you see it.
0: It's a very diplomatic answer there because social media is very attuned to evaluating Shars counterattack opinions. I feel like Mm. that's the one. If you want to get the discourse churning online, it's just (laughs) drop a hot take about Shars counterattack and the Sharks will come.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You find you find your 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 favourite political theorist, and and then make a shod's contract statement involving them. <laughs> Just let the let the the quote retweets come in. Yes, um, so that's a big that's a big thing for me. And but I also you know I have a a, a, a real uh, I I think an appreciation for the the lighter bits of Gundam. I would happily happily defend G Gundam, and um, you know I'm I'm a big fan of the first season specifically of, of Build Fighters, which is fairly recent. I don't know if, have either of you seen that or. Okay, yeah, and I I I really enjoyed it. The first season specifically is just a very effective sports show mm-hmm. that happens to involve a lot of Gunpla. Um and um uh we showed it at the uh, my local university's anime club. We showed Build Fighters. Um to an audience who largely didn't and one or two other people knew about Gundam, but largely people didn't know anything about Gundam and it went down really well. Like people really, really enjoyed it. Um and um uh, you know, people just cottoned onto the characters and, and and the sort of sense of excitement and, and the show's willingness to have a laugh about how ridiculous the, the premise is um so yeah so that's so that's a show a fairly recent gundam title that that i i'm quite fond of so yeah there's a there's a sense of where i am with the franchise i suppose things things that that i'm less fond of and i've seen i've seen most of gundam that isn't you know leaving aside that like sd Gundam and so on i've mm, seen sure. most of the kind of mainline stuff Um i the one, the one show I've never actually managed to watch, despite re- repeated tries, is is Wing. Um, Fair. I missed the yeah. I, I think I wish I'd seen Wing when I was like twelve because I I would. Uh, Here's the just cultural divide it. right here. Yeah. I gotta ask:
0: as a British anime fan, are there mm. Gundam series that really caught on there? Because Americans have a very Americans of a particular age have a very particular relationship with Gundam mm. Wing, mm. as it was a gateway anime for so many. But I'm not, I wonder if there are any. Equivalence in, I'll guess I'll just say like British culture or like the British animation scene.
2: I know, honestly, I, I I can't think that there is. I mean, if if there is a a, a Gundam that was historically big here, it is Wing, but really it wasn't. Is <laughs> is how I would say. i um, the the it 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 had you know, people people caught it on television and 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 it had a little bit of a buzz in the UK. And there there is a Gundam sort of scene in in the UK. There are shops where you can buy Gunpla and so on, but it's just not it's just never had there's never really been a title for Gundam that's had a a wing moment in in the u k in the way in the way that there was for the u s and it's probably also worth registering that we i think simply don't have um in some ways sort of attention to anime is, is kind of quieter and and a smaller thing in in the u k partly demographically the the u k unlike the u s has never occupied japan um like the, there are there are other parts of Asia which the UK is incredibly culturally closely connected to for reasons which should be obvious if you think very briefly about about history. But um, uh, and yeah, so there's that, and we're much further away. I mean, uh, geographically, if you consider the Pacific coast of the US, is just obviously going to be going to be Pacific facing in a way that the the UK can't be, despite the slightly odd pretensions of some of our politicians, um, and. <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, and I, I think both Gundam and, and, to some extent, anime in general have a—you know—there are absolutely there are you know big, big kind of passionate fans of, of 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 both to be found here, and and we have cons though on a smaller scale than than the US, but um, uh, it's it's not quite um, the same thing, I think. Though it is a much bigger deal, anime and and manga and an interest in Japan. Are all hugely, hugely more significant for young people today than they were in 2000 or 2005, uh, and I think th- that may be true in the US as well. But certainly, I think that's that's true here.
0: Yeah, in the US at least, there's definitely been an anime and manga upswing since the beginning of the pandemic. But I feel like that trend was beginning even before the pandemic broke out.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been good to see. Um, the it's it's much more normal now to run into people who. Who have seen more than Jibby films, or, or you know, have maybe they don't think of themselves as necessarily um, being into manga, but they actually read manga. You know, that's <laughs> just as one of the one of the things they're they they're they're sort of just uh, part of their entertainment universe, and and that's really nice. It's a really good thing.
0: Now you talked about seeing Pat Labor One and Pat Labor Two in theaters, which is an experience I would love to share with you or anyone, or even by myself, as in the states we have yet to have that opportunity. Ghost in the Shell did get an IMAX release recently, as as mm. of like last year. I didn't go check it out, but we occasionally do have events like that. But you saw Gundam: The Origin in a movie theater, so I want you to give us some context. Was there? Was it was at a local showing, a large island-wide theatrical release. Like, what was that experience like?
2: Great, yeah, yeah. So it was an interesting, uh, interesting event in various ways. So, um, uh, it happened in conjunction with. Uh, kind of a con there's an event in london called the mcm expo which sort of passes for an anime con um and it's more corporate and and um and a bit underwhelming and more corporate and less whelming um <laughs> than uh than uh, i mean from everything i hear um you know big big american cons are and i think the the uk is just a smaller country so there's less of a immediate Reason to have a big event in the year where you go and see all of your anime friends once, um, so I think that's one factor maybe why why we don't have in quite the same way. But yeah, it, it's it's kind of like a con. And um, uh, one thing that we are blessed with is um, the, at least one of the anime companies based in the UK is really good at arranging screenings and film sort of film festivals and and that sort of thing. Um, uh so you know your chances of going to a, a good exciting corner lower but your chances of getting a chance to see an interesting anime film quite early uh actually possibly higher here than in many parts of the u.s i think and uh this was it was a screening of the first two episodes of the origin um the film miss hokusai um which is about the daughter of the japanese painter hokusai who and people will be familiar i think with the the wave image that that um this is a f- famous, famous bit actually of course he painted an incredible amount of stuff across an incredible career. Um uh the first Love Live film and um uh a film called Empire of Corpses, which has since subsequently, I think, largely sunk without trace, but was a kind of mid mid 2010s thing. So this is in twenty fifteen. And uh it was it was it was a one off. So it wasn't a, a nationwide screening. It was very much like this con is happening. And in conjunction with that we're gonna put these things on a kind of Uh, subsequent across one afternoon kind of screening afternoon and evening um, in one cinema and uh, and if you want to come you you know you can get yourself down to london and (laughs) get a ticket now uh, the the screening of the first two episodes of the origin was as i understand it uh, and as they said at the event was the international premiere of of the origin in, in in cinemas so it's the first time anyone has shown the origin outside of japan uh and inside japan I believe I'm right in saying that um, you know, The Origin was, was sort of screened in cinemas and then released on, on discs in this sort of hybrid OVA film, yes, yes, um, format, um, which seems to be the way that these prestige projects work now, so things like um, Unicorn or um, uh, Yamato 2199 have this sort of format where you, you screen it in cinema and then you, you sell the discs at a high price and so you kind of rinse, rinse the passionate fans' as many times as you can. Understand? Yeah, the
0: OVA format has changed in, like, recent mm. decades in Japan, but the Code Geass OVA, Akito the Exiled, had a similar theatrical release and then ah, DVD right. Blu-ray
2: release. Interesting, yes, interesting. That makes sense, that makes sense. So so in that sense, you're physically, being in a cinema, watching it is kind of like that experience of, of, of um, catching a screening of The Origin in Japan and then again, of course, it wasn't like that because it was a one-off, and one was aware of the, the uniqueness of the, the chance. You know, that it was only because I was available on that particular day and motivated enough to get on the train and go to London and so on that I was seeing it. Um, and they showed they showed both episodes dubbed. Um, uh, I don't know what they behind that that decision. Um, uh, I mean, I, my relationship with dubs is that um, so dubbing, of course, is uh, you know there's, there's a, there are strong arguments to be made. For, for watching anime dubbed I mean it's it's um uh, it's a very transparent experience which is more like speaking Japanese as a first language and watching the original voice track and these things are not made to be watched with your eyes kind of focused on the, the bottom of the screen <laughs> um, uh, 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 and so on um, uh, the the fact that most anime dubbing is done in a different variety of English unfortunately means that most dubs sound to me of uh, unavoidably foreign so I lose the transparency that the, you know the dub is is meant to meant to provide um uh so so you know i would like to watch more anime dubbed um in some ways uh you know of course the ultimate solution to the the ancient subs versus dubs debate is to learn japanese like if you care that much <laughs> but but um uh in, in practice i generally watch anime subtitled and um so it was interesting seeing it dubbed um but had this kind of double doubled foreign quality because because it was uh uh, you, you know a recognizably american dub um you know reasonably well acted um uh, um in a in a in a different in a different context so that that too was kind of weird and and interesting and then the other thing that I distinctly remember um was so my friend and i who'd who'd, who'd gone we we stayed to watch miss Hokusai, um which um was a good film worth worth watching if, if you're interested especially interested in in the history of japanese art um and then um we were leaving when the love life film was was they they were setting up the screening for the love life film and at the beginning of the origin screening you know we'd felt like I'd like gone with a friend who was who was really into gundam and there were there were people there there's someone there cosplaying as shah interesting choice but anyway you know respect and um, you know, there were clearly some passionate fans who'd come um you know potentially maybe a long way um and um that was good it, it kind of felt like yes you know here here are the here are the gundam fans and they're turning out for this thing and um and then we we as we were leaving we walked past the the queue for the love life screening and there was a sort of no the love life fans are far more passionate and also numerous than than, uh, than, than we are they're, 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 you know i think um that was must have been the peak of the popularity of i guess the first season of love line that's not a not a set of anime i'm familiar with though more power to people who enjoy them um but um yeah it, it was quite a fun sort of experience of of initially thinking, you know, you, you, your fandom was the the big dog in the room, and then realizing that no, no, like another Phantom, <laughs> there, was a, there was a far far newer and a more powerful dog kicking around. But um, uh, uh, you know, not that it was any kind of competition. But I was kind of amused in retrospect by by that, that memory. Um, it was it was good. It was a good experience. It was it was interesting, um, uh, interesting to do, and and it was really good that they 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 did it. I mean, uh, every every time something gets screened here, it's it's a really welcome and valuable.
0: Your perspective on dubbing is fascinating, and i, I couldn't i' didn't, I'm chastising myself for not thinking about it sooner because there are so few anime dubbed into i'll say just quote british English, and mm. whenever I do run across them like a few Ghibli films have like a second English dub, I find that very quaint and fascinating, and I would love to see mm. more of it
2: yeah and you, and you occasionally you get um uh you know games might have a, a british dub or or something like that, but um
1: I can talk uh, about that and, if you want. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what... what I, also, I mean, what probably the, the most... Xenoblade.
1: The first Xenoblade Chronicles yeah. has yeah. an extremely... Uh, I think it's British again. I'm not, you know, I, I've... I listen to a bunch of people from various English speaking regions. Like I listen, I watch an Australian streamer very often. So I have like all those kind of mixing in my ears. Yeah. Because I got the PAL
0: release first. That's
1: right. Um, and then of course there are also, uh, you know, I'm very into fifth, sixth generation video games and, uh, more often than not, when it comes to Mecca, that unfortunately means a North American release, but not a PAL region release. <laughs> uh, but there are some games that slip through and only get PAL releases. And so, much like you said those american dubs can sound very foreign to you uh i'm gonna throw out Overblood 2 which is a very obscure game that only has a, a pal region release and has just an incredible uh i'm very sure it's british uh you know english <laughs> release uh which, you Overblood know look, look up too. screen you look up uh yeah. if you want to hear it you know look it I up will, it's just, i will yeah thank you that's that's, that's cool thank you it's I mean, very interesting
2: i mean you, you mentioned the australian street right? and you know it's it's um uh, Unusually enough for a British person to come across a British um, anime dub, but obviously mm. if you speak Australian English or New Zealand English, you know you, it's going to be an even even more empty field. So, uh, and there are and there's there's a, an old um, I believe there's an old dub of um, uh, Do You Remember Love in in Hong Kong English. Mm. Um, yeah, there, I think that came up in yeah. one of our
0: history segments.
2: Yeah, so there are there are all kinds of 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 interesting. Things out there. If you really dig into this stuff, and, I, and it's the sort of thing Mike Tool does, you know, dub dubs the time forgotten, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, I wish I knew more about it. Of course, because I generally watch things subtitles it's, it's all a bit of a bit of a closed uh, closed book to me. But you're right. It is it is a really interesting topic. The way that these things these things get their their um, dubs in what is sort of one language, but but also you know varied enough for for there to be distinct um, geographical and cultural sort of associations of different varieties.
0: And when you talk about Xenoblade 2, American fans were so taken with the British voice actors that I think it's stuck going forward, even when they're getting concurrent releases. I believe Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and 3.
1: I think that's right. Yeah. I think that is correct. I mean, certainly 3 is on the way, so, you know, we'll find out how deep they mm. go.
2: I, de- I definitely played one of them, and I remember being struck by um, there were some Welsh actors in it, and that, which was great, because, uh, I mean, you, you don't hear British dubs often. You really don't hear, like, Welsh English yeah. um, very much at all um uh and um and scottish actors as well and, and i distinctly remember being struck by that and thinking mm-hmm. they must have this must be a deliberate decision like someone has sat down and be like not just british but like who, who can we get in here to to represent different different things which is really interesting
0: that is that is fascinating speaking of fascinating you also maintain 327 robots a blog mm. dedicated to your thoughts on anime particularly mecha anime but not exclusively I believe the first time we interacted on Twitter, and this was way back, but I had an article published on 0080, War in the Pocket on Zimmeret, and you posted a response article, which was equally as interesting, and I really, I really got a kick out of it, because not that was like one of the first times someone reacted in, like I'll say print, to one of my articles, and I was thrilled. I shared it on the Discord with my co-host, and I was very excited. And you had a lot of interesting things to say in response to it. And your blog is full of informative and interesting pieces that I encourage all our listeners to check out. So I have to ask at this point, what prompted you to write in the first place, like what are your favorite topics and how has the experience of putting your thoughts, uh, you know, in text form on the internet been?
2: Great. Yeah. Thank you. That's, uh, maintain is a strong word. I haven't, I haven't posted much recently. I think it's, it's a project that I, um, I set out on because I had some quite specific things I wanted to, to get kind of out. And clear in my head, and then and then kind of out in public. Um, having done that, I feel like I'm happy for it to be dormant for a bit. And so, 327 robots wasn't my first time at the rodeo. I, I I used to blog about anime back when I was an enthusiastic new anime fan. You know, in the in the in the early sort of 2007, 2008, 2009 sort of period. Uh, but um, you know, I, I prefer to leave leave all of that blogging in 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 in, in my in my past. But um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I um uh i started doing that because i wanted to so i suppose the the, the thing that prompted me to write was that i i'm not there was, there was a moment when i was an undergraduate when i considered you know do i like anime enough to want to do research on it like do i want to try and make a a career out of studying this and the answer to that was no, you know, I really like it, but I wanted to be a hobby um, rather than you know, if, if, if something becomes what you what you study professionally, you develop a different relationship with it um, to, to, to what you do in your spare time. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, had I had the answer been yes, I would have gone away and learned Japanese and, and, and so on. It would have been a different, a different story. Um, uh, but um, uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on Japanese culture. I'm also not an expert on, on animation in the way that, say, um, Matteo, who runs Animetudes, which is a site you may well have come across, um, uh, uh, you know, he, he and I have been you know, occasionally natter to each other and I, I've done a little bit of kind of copy editing and that sort of thing for him. And, you know, obviously people like him or, or my friend Craker, um, Craker2K, um, who, again, you might have come across on Twitter, um, you know, they, they really understand animation and, and how it's made and how you identify animators and that sort of thing. Um, but what I do... I think have a reasonable knack for is putting things in fairly clear kind of layperson's language and pulling information together and I've been around long enough that I know a lot of people who, who know things about anime so I sort of In the early modern period, there were people who were important to the progress of of science, not because they were scientists, but because they just wrote a lot of letters to scientists. So if you're a scientist, you'd write a letter to them and say, you know, I've I've been coming across this interesting phenomenon. Do you know anyone who works on this kind of thing? There were people who kind of nodes of information, and I suppose to some extent that's how I conceived myself for thinking about anime and about giant robots and that sort of thing. So I wanted to to, to, to do a a blog that would dig into some of these things that are very poorly discussed, like the transition from sales and film to uh, to uh, compositing and colouring anime digitally and mastering it digitally um, and like aspect ratios and, and when the aspect ratios of television and anime change and that sort of thing. Topics that are actually pretty fundamental um, where, you know, people, someone somewhere knows the answers, but, but you've kind of got to just go and, and ask the questions and talk to people. And then if you do gather the information, you could put together quite a good, neat post that's just like, here's when this happened, here's how we think it happened, here's what some of the effects were, here are some ways of thinking about it. So that's that's kind of what I aim for with that blog. Um, but I also did use it, and hopefully we'll use it again at some point, uh, for things like responding to, to yeah, your, your your really interesting um, piece on, on, um, on W-A-T. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's nice to know that if you want to sit down and write something, uh, you've got somewhere where you can put it um, uh, if, if that makes sense um, and it's very different to and in my professional life, when you write something first of all, it takes a very long time, because you've got to <laughs> do all the legwork, you know, producing new knowledge, unlike collating existing knowledge um, is very hard work, of course um, and then it has to go through peer review, so, you know, it could be a year or two before something sees the light of day um so it's nice to just write something and press publish and then uh, and then if you're wrong people will be like hey hey you're wrong <laughs> uh, which is, is nice to have that immediate feedback
0: without a doubt I, m- I miss writing not that i can't do it but i find trouble squeezing in the time after mm, mm. producing a podcast teaching mm. and mm. then carving out time for my hobbies
2: yeah, I teach. Teaching is one of those vocational careers that just just is a, a real a monster for swallowing time, isn't it? So, yeah.
0: <laughs> now, usually before we begin the discussion proper, PMC will read a summary from the back of some dank ass American VHS release. With Origin, unfortunately, we do not have that luxury, so I had to get a little creative. I tried hunting down old like Adult Swim summaries from. Who knows where, but I couldn't find any, and they might not even exist. So I had to resort to, and maybe resort's um, not the best word, because there's a negative framing there, but I used Crunchyroll. And Crunchyroll released, and it's still currently streaming, the TV broadcast episodes of Origin. And if you combine episodes one and two, that makes OVA volume one. So, and it's the summaries are very short. They're not very fun. They're very buttoned up. But <laughs> PMC is going to... Regale us with a summary of Origin One. All
1: right. Origin One, Blue Eyed Casval, Universal Century 0068. Casval and Artesia are the orphaned children of Daikun, who preached the reformation of humanity through advancement into space and independence from the Earth Federation government. With Daikun's death, conflict intensifies between the zabi and rao families to escape political strife Daikun's orphan children castle and
0: artesia say farewell to their mother and depart for earth with jimba rao also before we jump into the discussion i cannot i always laugh when i see the name jimba it's yes. just such a cartoon <laughs> yeah. name and of course gundam <laughs> has some interesting naming conventions but jimba all right this is a real deep cut here not too deep if you've been on the internet and you're of a certain age, but the American television show Jimmy Neutron, the dad always says Jimbo in a very exaggerated manner, and I always think of that very cartoonish dad saying Jimbo whenever Jimbo Rao shows up. And Jimbo Rowell himself is a very cartoonish figure, so maybe it's appropriate. But. I feel like I yeah. always
1: yeah. I always think of um I mean I that maybe this is the wrong the wrong uh, media uh, franchise to bring up a uh, but I always think of the late 90s James Bond films with um the the whoever was playing Felix Leiter would refer to James Bond as Jimbo. Oh really? I forget his name. He's he shows up in Goldeneye and I think he shows up in Tomorrow Never Dies too. I forget the, the it's an actor who's been like a character actor who's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um
2: but he's like huh. Jimbo.
1: You know, that's <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> it. I have a so, similar phenomenon.
2: So it's um before we there's, there's something we, I think you've put your finger on something that we could think about before we get into the the episode, which is when they cut this for television, this was two episodes. I mean, what, what do you think that would have done to, to, to this kind of, because it seems to me that the, the kind of hour long OVA episode we're about to discuss is kind of a fairly, you know, well, we might discuss how unified, but it's, it's like a thing, you know, there's an ending and a beginning. There's a, there's a kind of rising action and so on. Um, I and mean, what what must it have been like watching this as as two episodes do you think
0: yeah i wonder when that first episode cut like wh- is there a natural end point in between mm. in like 22 minutes in 25
2: minutes in And is, there's not there's, there's really only one big action sequence in yeah. <laughs> in this first episode so so you can't i know when they when they cut unicorn into a television series um which i know you mentioned in your, in, in the previous episode um uh, they, they actually rejigged the ordering. You know, they they edited it, the the order, so they didn't just pick a point and kind of cut. They, they had to mess around with the order of things to try to try to get the first episode to have some kind of excitement near the kind of mid late sort of in the in the final third. Um, I, I didn't think it was terribly successful, but but it, you know, it was interesting to see them uh, take that on.
0: Um. <laughs> I'm one of the few Gundam fans clamoring for less mobile suit fights and more world building. Mm. I'm probably preaching to the choir because I feel like the Gundam intelligentsia out there agrees, but I feel like not every single episode of Gundam needs a Gundam fight or a mobile suit fight. So maybe it's a good thing. Probably not, though.
2: It is one of the things I, I mean, though I really like seeing giant robots smash each other up, um, that is one of the really nice things about Turn A is, is it's a very gentle, reflective show, and there are a number of episodes where it simply doesn't have um a battle and 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 you are just spending time with the characters and seeing how they're all struggling not to let the world descend into a terrifying war <laughs> but um yeah yeah that, that, yeah I, I i I'm in sympathy with that i'm in sympathy with
1: that I feel like my choice for where to cut kind of depends uh on what I view as the the framing of these episodes, and I imagine this is something we'll get into, but it's sort of um you know who's who's the most important, even the summary that I just read. We've identified mm. Casfall, Artesia, and honestly, uh, I'm you know known hater Ron Barrow logging on, but I, Ron Barrow features very prominently, and you, you I think you can mm-hmm. make a pitch for him as being sort of the the driving force of these episodes. Uh, so it's you know it's kind of I, where I where I pick the break point probably becomes is there a turning point or an important moment for what mm-hmm. I view as the central character of the first episode of the
0: OVA. Mm. Yeah, this will feature yeah, in a discussion yeah. too because I have a feeling we're going to have various different takes when it comes to does the origin have a main character and if so, who is it? Because I have a very pretentious academic answer for that but I feel like other fans or maybe my two co-hosts here will have like specific flesh and blood characters to point to and go, yes, that is the main character of the origin or they are the main character of the origin, these
2: two mm. characters. Yeah, yeah, well I, I look forward to getting into that. I look forward to it. <laughs>
0: So we open in Medius Rest on January 23rd, UC0079, everyone's favorite year, as a massive space battle breaks out between Xeon and Federation forces. So readers of the origin would immediately, I assume, recognize this as the Battle of Loom, which volume 7, correct PMC? Volume I believe that's seven, right. Yeah, it's the last of the prequel volumes. Chronicles in exhaustive detail. Fans of First Gundam, though, like if you went into this only watching Mobile Suit Gundam, might be able to suss out, like, yes, this is the Battle of Loom because Loom gets name-dropped a few times in the show, and it features in a lot of these supplemental material as well.
2: Yeah, and this is this is not, of course, what the long, long flashback volume sequence, volumes sequence uh, in the manga begins with. So already, you know, already, actually, there's a big change here from from the experience of picking up. It's volume five, right? That the the long yes. flashback begins um, in the manga. Yeah, picking up volume five of of of, of the origin um, uh, as 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 it was split into volumes in the English uh, the recent English release and and um, uh, and reading that because that begins with um, uh, Sailor reminiscing. So so it's presented as Sailor reminiscing, and then it takes us to to Munzo um, uh, or Mun Munzo Munzo. Um, uh, in the the, the late zero zero sixties or mid mid zero zero sixties, and it takes us to, to Zeon de death um death, uh, which is a completely different beginning point. So um, uh, that's that's first of all, if you if if you were familiar with the manga, this would immediately be like, oh, they're, they're doing something different. Secondly, this completely changes the way that that what comes next is framed, um, because if it's Sailor reminiscing, that really changes whose perspective. The scenes we see is, uh, is, um, you know, who, who's, um, who what we're seeing is, is being focalized through. Um, you know, the perspective or the point of view that we're, we're meant to be imagining in the scenes. Beginning with Loom gives us Shah as, 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 you know, the, the, the person that we're, we're kind of reminiscing or looking back, um, through. And that's a, actually a radical shift to, to, I think, how, how a lot of the rest of what happens in the episode is going to be, be, um, be perceived. Um, a radical
0: but the most obviously commercial shift that they could ever have done, <laughs> framing the origin which is going to be consumed by the general masses, framing it through Shar's eyes, or at least depicting Shar very prominently as opposed to framing it through Sela.
2: And there is a there is a kind of um, like You've come to the cinema to see the Japanese release of The Origin, or you've just got your disc of The Origin. You, you like the long-term Gundam fan, you're putting it in. What do you want to see? You want to see the Red Zaku. Here is the Red Zaku. Like, like, happy now? Okay, good. Like, we can... I think there's, there's an element of that, perhaps, going on here. But.
1: You know, hearing you guys talk about how the shift in perspective happens here with the introduction in the first episode of the OVA uh, puts in mind the thing that I think struck me most about watching this episode and which I was probably going to mention later, but maybe now is the right time to mention it at the outset, which is that not only does this shift the framing character wise, but I think this also is very big evidence of the shift in emphasizing the militarism. Like militarism is present in the manga, of course, Mm -hmm. but I think um, kind of presenting battle of room as almost the framing device or as a, as a point about which to, present the story really uh brings into uh light the some of the changes that are going adaptationally and also i know in in history episode uh that we just released a lot of the personnel you know the creative personnel are known for uh emphasizing the militarism of gundam in their Mm -hmm. works and i think this is a
2: this is you know this follows from that
0: are you a stardust memory fan um
2: I'm a fan of the animation in Stardust Memory um, and it's, it's a long time since I saw it so this is Stardust Memory is something that I watched as a, as a uh, you know my early 20s as a, again in that first kind of phase um, that I was discussing earlier and I haven't gone back to it since and I guess that's probably that's a ruling isn't it on, <laughs> uh, on, 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 on my relationship with it but um, uh, it does mark a particular moment in, in the sort of well resourced animation of mobile suits and, and for that one has to kind of give it give it something but um yeah i think the the this really does um uh it gives us the battle as the the end point the telos that the origin is kind of taking us to right the 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 end point that the origin is taking us to is sha the red comet in the zaku at loom um whereas of course in the manga the endpoint is is mobile suit gundam <laughs> it's 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 the events of the, the one-year war and, and and the white base but to some extent, you, know, you could make a case that that's kind of unavoidable because you don't have the rest of the the rest of the story. You, right. The origin it has, to, has to become its own thing somehow as an OVA. So.
0: Now, you mentioned the manga, and you have knowledge of the manga. Can I assume that you've read all 12 volumes?
2: Mm-hmm. It's a little while, but um, I bought them as, as they were coming out. And one, one of the great things, of course, about, um, about manga is it's not region-locked. So, so if an American company um, releases a manga you're interested in, you, you just order it, and the bookseller gets it for you incredible wonderful the, the codex you know the perfect information technology um uh so yes yes and, and really enjoyed it uh and i think it's really it's um just stands stands on its own really well as a, as a great kind of um uh humane war story um uh and um and of course visually it's it's this extraordinary record of of Yass's sort of i mean it must be one of his one of his great works right the, this huge achievement i think in, in in the career of a really important artist so
0: yeah, in my notes I wrote Magnum Opus a few times, but then I thought mm. I was doing some overreaching with my vocabulary, so I toned <laughs> it back just because I, you know, ma- many of his manga series are not available in English, and I didn't want yeah, to uh, yeah. overreach.
2: Yeah, and, and, and one doesn't want to give the impression that Yas is like only a, a Gundam person, because as, as your history episodes have hopefully well, well conveyed to people, and this is someone with really wide-ranging interests who's, who's done manga engaged with all kinds of history and all kinds of of sort of speculative and fantastical things
0: so yeah yeah one of my follow-up questions the reason why i asked you if you read the manga i was curious if it got a domestic release in the uk but you answered that so you were reading the vertical releases mm-hmm. that were that yeah. was published yeah. in and the i US. think
2: i think for for that kind of release i think that's that's de rigueur i think that's the normal approach is that it you know it's um Job lots will be shipped in um, uh, into 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 um, the UK and 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 the Republic of Ireland, um, uh, the you know the English speaking bits of Europe, um, and actually that was another factor in I remember hearing Ed Chavez um, interviewed about uh, is, is is that's Ed, Ed Chavez was the person at Vertical at the time, right? Mm-hmm. About the origin release and him remarking that they'd had more sales than they expected in non English speaking parts of of. Of of Europe and and elsewhere and and again if if it's not region locked and you're publishing it in a in a widely spoken you know la- a, an interchange language like English then yeah people in Germany are going to buy <laughs> going to buy your release of the origin say like Gundam so yeah it, it, I think um, uh, it found a, a pretty wide audience.
0: Old school video games the PAL versions were usually different because of the. Something with the TV, right? That's right, so the TV Mm -hmm. standard.
1: The the big difference is that the the TV standard in PAL region was 50 hertz instead of 60 hertz, uh, which presents a pretty wild technical challenge for, you know, depending on where you're originally developing your game and where you're porting it to. Um, I'm, uh, Thal. are you familiar with speed running? is that yeah yeah
2: okay. uh, i mean it's not not something i've done myself mm-hmm. but i've seen seen people do it i i know i know you do it and and uh it's a really interesting way of engaging with 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 the way these things are made
1: for fifth and sixth generation games so which is to say games before we all ascended to hdmi i guess uh you know to, to flat screen tvs the uh it is You might think, oh, well, the PAL version will always be slower. And I just want to say that that's not true because sometimes when you adapt a game for a different technical standard, you might try to speed it up, you know, so that it looks like the same game in either region. Um, And that is very difficult to actually achieve. Uh, So, for example, games like a lot of the Crash Bandicoot series, uh, Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops, uh, games like that will actually be faster to run on PAL. Uh, huh. and there, there you go. Pal is not always worse. Don't you know? Huh. I, I try to give everyone their fair shake.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a uh, very, very even-handed of you. But and no, I had no idea <laughs> about that. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I know. I suppose if you were trying to tune tune up the speed of your game a bit for the PAL region, you could overshoot, couldn't you? Exactly. You could give people a game that would let you. Speedrunner or, or overlook
1: certain things, you know, that might, mm. that might affect. Uh, and obviously, speedrunners are always going to find those things, is what they do. Of course. Yes. Uh, yes and yes. so that'll be like, oh, oh so, you know, yeah. by playing in this version, the cycles are still the same, even though, you know, we're now moving faster because we've been sped up to look like we're mm.
0: the NTSCU version. <laughs> I didn't know that. In my normie ass American <laughs> mentality, I always just assume that all PAL games are slower. You're often right, but not always. So at the outset of the battle, the Xeon fleet led by commander Dozel sustains significant damage from a devastating fusillade unleashed by federation ships if not for Shar Aznable, a veritable red comet we'll get to that later whose godlike skills as a sharpshooter and preternatural speed allows him to lay waste to several federation warships the one year war might have been a one month war so Ichiro Atana who I mentioned in the history episode he got his start in the industry, working on First Gundam as a key animator way back in 1979. Actually, before he was an animator, he was a truck driver. And after First Gundam, he returned to truck driving. And then he got a more like permanent position in the animation industry. But he was brought on to direct this opening scene. And I think we all have experience with Itano. Thal, you mentioned Macross Plus. I mean, Itano's fingerprints are all over this. His signature flourishes really stand out. The action on screen is incredibly fast and frenetic to the point where it's a bit difficult to track. Char is dodging a shit ton of missiles as he jets around the battlefield. To its credit, I, I do think the action's a little too frenetic for my taste, but I really like the sense of scope employed in some of these shots, especially when you're looking up at the fleet above you and you just see this like, overwhelming sense of military power with all of these mm-hmm. battleships like perfectly aligned, and mm-hmm. that's really enhanced by the framing of the shots. So a lot of smart decisions there, I think.
2: And it's yeah. There's there's a there's a great shot which, um, uh, and uh, we'll talk maybe about the 3DCG in a moment. But to give it its due, this is something you can do really really well with 3DCG. it begins sort of in or behind the Federation fleet and moves right through the Federation fleet, through the firing zone between the flu fleets, the two fleets, and you know into the Xeon fleet and and up to the the flagship where where um, Dozal is 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 commanding. Um, and it just gives you this huge sense of the. The, the scale of the whole battlefield, and of course of the the fact that until the mobile suits arrive, um, the battleships have been shaping this battlefield, and this is within the you know the, the military fiction, um, which is what some of the people making this OVA maybe find find exciting. Um, you know this battle is it's the, it's the the midway right. This is this is where the warship ceases to to be the the battlefield shaping thing. Um, in 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 space, and suddenly the, it's about mobile suits um and and everything you invested in big expensive warships. Well, you're gonna have to make mobile suit, mobile suit carriers now. like I hope you like mobile suit character carriers um, <laughs> and and um uh so so it's a really pivotal moment for for thinking about how these battles look uh, in 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 within the universe and and I, I guess that might well be behind some of the thinking going on here but also just visually yes it is incredibly frenetic there's an, Im- an incredible amount of movement the fact that it's hard to follow at least helps you appreciate that Shah who's dodging all this stuff that's hard to follow is following it so you know there's this sort of sense that you know you the mere you know old type watching <laughs> are kind of struggling to will catch all these projectiles but um, uh, and, and you know one might want to talk about the positives and negatives of making Shah look cool but Shah does look cool here and if that's your goal this scene does it really 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 well
0: yeah, I feel like that's um, Sunrise's like commercial goal writ large is to make Char look cool in as many things <laughs> as possible, be they commercials for cars or mm. I don't know the the cover of some magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, during this opening scene, viewers are immediately greeted with studio did CG work. Clearly, none of these mechs are hand drawn. To be fair, they are originally drawn on paper, but eventually, through the translation mm. process, they were brought into life, so to speak or brought to life, so to speak, um, with computer animation or computer graphics specifically. Now, Thal, I know you have some thoughts about the CG that basically gives origin its identity. So please, the floor is yours. Tell us your <laughs> thoughts. Be be as critical as you'd like. Don't worry, I have some critical <laughs> thoughts too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, the first thing I should, you know, the, the first thing I should say is that I'm not here to say that 3D CG animation is bad or that, um, or that, Companies turn to it to save money or 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 because they're la i mean uh, anyone who knows anything about the Japanese anime industry, one of the first things you realize is that almost anyone involved in the actual making of this stuff is not lazy like like there are a lot of things overworked is one of them lazy definitely isn't um, uh, the I, I, making three dimensional computer models and moving them around so as to generate footage. Uh, is a creative craft like any other, and you know it deserves respect. Um, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not into the results. You know, it's not a craft I find terribly exciting. I think for me, for me, this is a very different craft to hand-drawn mechanical animation, and 3D CG, to my mind, tends to smooth out the excitement and the experience of a of a mecha action sequence. So everything is acceptable. Everything might be pretty exciting. But there's never really a moment where you think, "My goodness, how did they do that?" You know, that's that's extraordinary. Whereas I think with hand-drawn mechanical animation, you you totally get, especially in television anime, scenes where the animation is not coping with the ambitions of the people you know who were originally conceived of 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 the material. Uh, you know, we've all we've all seen we've all seen um, mecha shows from the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, and the present where that that might be the case. But there are also bits where you just think, "My goodness! Like I could never do that, and I could I couldn't even imagine doing that, even if I could draw." Um, and uh, it's a shame to lose that those kind of wow excitement um, uh, shots in, in in hand-drawn mechanical animation. So I think there is there is for me. There's that, and then I think beyond that, there's something. You know, 3DCG is a very distinct activity to hand drawing animation, um, and and to be clear, because people sometimes get confused about this, most anime is still, you know, the core of most anime is still hand drawn. It's it's coloured digitally and it's shot digitally. It's it's put together inside a conceptual camera inside a computer, rather than being shot onto film using cells in in an actual multiplane camera. But uh, you know, people drew those shapes on paper that were scanned or on an electronic tablet. But but. 3D CG modelling is, is not like that. And, um, I mean, do, do you mind if I, I, this will only take me five minutes, but do you mind if I bring in, um, uh, like, talk a little bit about sort of the philosophy of craft? Is that okay? Of course, yeah. That's why you brought you okay. up, <laughs> So there's a, there's a philosopher of craft called David Pye in the later 20th century, PYE, in, the, in, in, in Britain. And um, he had this idea of the, the craft of risk and the craft of certainty. Um, so he was a, he was a philosopher, but also a woodworker like he, his his job was woodworking and teaching people woodworking, but he was also a philosopher um, uh, and in in the craft of risk, as he framed it um, it 's activity in which something could go wrong at any moment and that would potentially ruin or at least set back the whole enterprise so drawing something by hand is an example of the craft of risk. Um, Uh, uh, copying out a bit of text by hand is an example of the craft of risk Um, sculpting something chipping away at a stone sculpture is an example of the craft of risk and then the the craft of certainty is is something where once you've set the the craft process in motion generally speaking things will go correctly and you get an an expected result so um, copying by hand is like the craft of risk printing is is the craft of certainty you you make a set of printed books they all look the same and that's, that's expected uh, and um, uh, factory moulding something is is an example of the, the craft of certainty. Now, the craft of certainty always originates in the craft of risk, so you mentioned someone had to design these mechanical designs, like these actual artists in a different craft to 3D modelers came up with these shapes, um, which were then crafted in a in a slightly risky way into 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 shapes 3d shapes to, to to make footage with in the same way that to to make type for printing you have to cut the type so making Gunpla um from a from a kit is an example of the craft of risk because if you use your your nippers the wrong way you could halve a bit for for, for from from um from the model kit designing gumpla um you know the people who conceive of the kits uh that's also kind of the craft of risk Manufacturing the kits in a factory is is the craft of certainty. So hopefully that that conveys what these what these things are. And Pi doesn't dislike the craft of certainty. He's not. He's reacting to people like John Ruskin and William Morris in the 19th century, who who were sort of saying, well, the industrial processes are bad and evil, and and there are lots of things about industrialization that you know had bad effects. But equally, like who doesn't love having you know, modern dentistry and you know electric lighting and so on? So so you know we shouldn't be um, we shouldn't be sort of sort of um, uh, pretending that, that there aren't fantastic things about the craft of certainty. But what Pi says is that the craft of certainty tends to eliminate the craft of risk. Um, so when the craft of certainty arrives, you tend to lose the skills and the products that the craft of risk was doing in the same space. Uh, and of course, of course, people who do the craft of risk do use little bits of certainty. A ruler is is a kind of certainty that you add when you're, you're drawing key animation. And I think that's what we've seen in 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 mechanical animation in anime. Basically, is is that twenty years ago, uh, thirty years ago, especially thirty years ago, um, you would you would hand draw your mechanical animation. And now, most anime series that involve mechanical animation, it'll it'll be done in three D C G. And that's not you know it doesn't mean doesn't mean three D C G is evil or bad. Um, uh, it Doesn't mean you can't like it, but I. I personally just feel it's really sad to see a, a craft tradition dwindling away and then for Gundam Gundam for a long time has kind of been like a nature reserve where some of this stuff survives right and the, and the people who've been making the the build series the build fighters build divers have been talking about this in like their their interviews they've been saying that this is and we mentioned Oshi earlier as 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 long ago as 2008 when so there's a radio interview between Oshi and um the famous producer from Studio Ghibli, uh, Suzuki, yeah. um, uh, about Skycrawlers, the Skycrawlers, Oshi's film The Skycrawlers. And they used 3DCG for the planes in, in the Skycrawlers. And um, Oshi um, says in the, in the interview, you know, well, we, we did this because there's not enough people left to draw the planes, for, uh, like, at, at the level you want um, for a feature film. Um, he said uh, in, the, in the translation by Co Ransom. Um, that I checked he said who's going to draw those fighter planes like no one no one's going to draw those fighter planes um, and uh, you know Gundam's kind of been preserving that so it, it's always a shame when you see a Gundam title uh, and, it, and it has um, it's a shame to me at least when you, you see a Gundam title take take the 3D CG route it was especially kind of tough with Origin because it came after Unicorn which whether or not you like it Unicorn has a lot of really interesting hand drawn you know detailed mechanical animation in it um and yeah, it's a shame to see that 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 craft tradition dwindling, but uh, at the end of the day, like uh none of that is to say that um uh you know, none of that's to devalue the effort and the skill that went into making this this opening sequence for the first episode of the Origin. It's really impressive, and um uh I linked you guys uh, earlier uh, a sequence on on Sakuga bordu, which is this incredible demonstration of the fact that you can do. Full background animation and incredible rotations in hand drawn animation. I mean, it's, it's a scene from early on in, in the TV series for Macross. Um, and uh, it, it, um, it shows that you know, if, if you have enough time and you want to, you, you, you don't need 3D CG to do some of the things that, that people do with 3D CG. But the person who drew that, the incredible animator who drew that sequence, was Itano. And Itano, for a long time, has been working with 3D CG. And when you see what he was doing in hand drawn animation, Although you know, personally, I would—it would be nice to have more modern hand-drawn works from Itano. Clearly, the guy's interested in this kind of thing, right? The—you the, know—the—the the, um, speed, motion, all these—these these stories that we have, accounts from him of like when they were making Macross Plus, and and they went to fighter school in in the U.S. and flew fighter planes. Um, uh, and he deliberately blacked himself out to get a sense of what, what that's like, or him and his friend strapping fireworks to their to their bikes and like riding at each other and firing the fireworks at each other. you know he 's clearly a guy who's into this stuff and, and that 's what he wants to do so i 'm not here to be like itano, you've betrayed us i mean let him let him make the stuff he wants to, to make at least animation wise and I, I, one might hesitate hesitate over some of the things he's directed but um yeah so that's that 's how I feel about the CG. is is personally I feel the loss but I don't want to be, you know, a purely reactionary sort of, you know, this this can't fly and we must reject it sort of thing because there's all kinds of, of cultural associations with that that are really, you know, unhelpful. So th- thanks for letting me soapbox for a bit there. And uh, hopefully hopefully I won't have bored the listeners too much by going on.
0: Oh, no, that was fascinating. I'm going to use the craft. Th- the craft of risk, like, succinctly puts into, like, words, like a very succinct phrase what
2: like has been bouncing around my mind for a while. Hmm. And so I, I find it a really, really useful, and and I think because Pi wasn't, because Pi wasn't presenting it in a like risk bad certainty uh, risk good certainty bad kind of way, it's it's both useful and fairly even handed. Like it's 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 not um it's not a tool where you're setting out to just discredit other stuff. It's just a way of thinking about the the world of objects and creative enterprises that we live in now since since industrialisation
0: yeah my thoughts are similar too like compare skycrawlers to the wind rises for example i mean maybe mm-hmm. it's of a time and it has to do with the perspective of the viewer but i think i'd be hard pressed to find like conjure up an argument that would says that sky cra- the the animation featured in Sky skycrawlers matches like the artistic heights of something like the wind mm-hmm. rises or even aesthetic heights
2: Mm. Or if you think about something like, like the the old Area 88 OVA, mm. uh, I don't know if either of you've seen that, but it's it's about a, a combat pilot um in um sort of mid to late Cold War era planes. Um and um uh, that has some really startlingly fun um animation of, of, of aircraft all hand hand drawn and uh, yeah it is hard to you know the, I think the Skycrawl is a fantastically interesting film, of course. Um but um and, and of course the other thing is that three D cg Often doesn't age as well as, as hand drawn, um, uh-huh. because it's so it's so tech dependent. You know, if you if you look at um, the planes in in, in the Sky crawlers, you might well find today that there are elements of the ways they're animated that feel of of the two thousands. In the same way that if you look at the um, the there's a there's a three D full three D animated sequence, three D CG animated sequence in the Osamu Dezaki's uh, Golgo thirteen film from the early early nineteen eighties uh which i believe is the first 3d cg sequence in in anime um and it, it just has dated very poorly um though one uh, you know for Dezaki it's an experiment and one kind of credits him for that and the film as a whole is is ind- indefensible in its content i don't know if either of you have seen it but um mind-blowingly beautiful i mean it, it's it's an astonishingly beautiful film it's it's just full of of violence and and sex and, and sexual violence so you know it's it's, <laughs> it's a hard one to recommend but an extraordinary artistic achievement um uh yeah yeah and, and 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 in in that case it was experimental it's just that now 40 years on um it's not experimental it's 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 just become the way that these things are done.
0: pmc do you have any hard hitting thoughts
1: about the cj i think the cg is you know i'm glad we got into the stuff in particular because i tend to be the sort of person who um i guess by nature is is contrarian about uh necessarily like something being the the end of days or that like or that sort of better mm-hmm. things aren't possible you know that that right. cg yeah. necessarily yeah. means that you know things are are only going to be worse from here on out mm. i think mm. the ability for someone like atano to you know express you know, my question is will the medium express what you want to express and you know i think mm. it's something that atano mm-hmm. in particular is good at discovering whether it be hand-drawn or cg the other part of that i would say is that you know there's there's a um User, you—the know, ability to have tools to let you express—I think—is kind of been the hardest thing of computers. Uh, you know, in in video games, there was sort of a um, a, a point, you know, in, in the '90s where you had the 3d cg renders were a sort of a separate existence aesthetically from the actual games themselves
2: yeah yeah
1: um and this was i mean this even dates back to like japanese pc games where you'd have bits of of animated sequences and then you'd have the adventure game or the little sprites or whatever and i you know at some point they kind of you know converged once the the computers all got advanced enough but the the thing that I, i point to is that like you know there was that part of it that was the sales pitch on the technology and then there was the part where they were choosing ways to express themselves and i think that's kind of the thing is that i always like to to wait and see and to you know to understand so i, I guess for me i've watched igloo so i can compare in my mind igloo mm. to origin and i can say they figured out some things along the way yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know that the te- technology has become more mature but the uh the artists at the you know with the tools have also become more mature because uh, you know, much like your uh Thal your earlier comment about you know you just you just get the book you just ship the book when you want to buy it. I I don't know I'm not a artist so I don't know to what extent from you know 1950 to 1990 that the way you would draw has changed. I'm sure it has. I'm sure there were changes. Uh, but it just I can't imagine it changed as much as technology mm-hmm. changed from like 1990 to, to like 2015 mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something. Um, so. I, I guess for me, it's you know. I think the preference, of course, is totally valid, uh, but I'm also because maybe maybe it's the technically minded part of me, uh, so curious what people can do with it and patient to mm-hmm. see it evolve.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I I think that's that's completely fair, and I think also the you know, this opening sequence is a real statement piece. Like this is a real marker, and I think you can it's in some ways it's easier to make the case aesthetically for this opening sequence because it's such a strong yeah. sort of you know look just what we can do with this whereas there are other parts of the ova where maybe the 3d cg is more like well we're going to use this to do this <laughs> and there's a bit less of a kind of like what what are the ways we can work with this have we really thought about like how, how are we going to express um maybe you know uh, one doesn't want to make definitive statements about what went on behind the production. But I think there's there's kind of a difference between this opening sequence, which is a real extravaganza, and maybe the, the slightly more workaday uses of the 3D CG later, perhaps. But
1: yeah, yeah. One more comment I would add about the opening. We already talked about how it's a you know it's a, a showcase for Shar. Shar is cool, Shar goes fast. Mm. He's <laughs> some might say he's a veritable red comet. And besides that though, the other thing that really st- sticks out to me, and this is I, I associate this with Gundam is the extent to which uh the carnage is shown the carnage of war and mm. i would love to mm. uh compare the impact of something like this to the impact of the battles of solomon and Baoku in the original tv show because there's a lot of time spent in those battles on showing soldiers dying you know that's just that's a part of the, mm. the fabric mm. of the story and we still see that here you know we see many bridges get smashed or exploded a shell enters and explodes and uh you in all different flavors of that and uh it it, that's you know that's an important part of the story and i think it follows from your your comment about this being a statement it Mm. is the part of the statement is that we are still doing some of the essential gundam things Mm. in this medium
2: definitely yeah yeah and there's one particular very memorable shot in which the um in slow motion the shell kind of enters the bridge from the side and you it's one of those moments that gundam occasionally does really really well where you get that sense of the um the horrifying disparity between the humans and the, and the kind of what the war machines they're using can do and the, the really famous example of this is the uh the shell casing falling down and and and, and hitting a civilian on the head in the mm-hmm. the early on in um f91 um but um yeah yeah like that the, i think that's a really good point thank you and i, I uh, it's not something that stood out as much to me, but as soon as you pointed out, I could immediately think of several of those of those right. shots, and that it, it's really trying to be in that in that tradition of 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 first Gundam, where you do have those those moments where, where it pauses and says, "Look, you don't know these guys, but but they're dying, and they're not coming back, and it's not a great way to die," and you know it's happening a lot like whenever you're in a battle scene Mm -hmm. you're meant to be kind of thinking this is what's happening around the the characters yeah
1: and especially in battle of loom of course it's also sort of that um you know again emphasizing the militarism it is a new a new theater of war i I think battle of loom is typically regarded as like the first big space battle in the in the uc setting right Mm. so that's it's kind of a new dimension a uh Mm. you know Mm. a sort of a world war one no man's land you know Mm. we, we discovered a new way to make things terrible here it is.
2: Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way of putting it. Yes,
0: yeah. I'm pretty lukewarm on the CG overall. Uh, I have a less academic take than Thal. My knee-jerk reaction <laughs> is that the mobile suits seem artificial. There's no weight to them. Of course, there's no weight to any of these mechs. They're theoretically drawings on paper, or at least JPEGs on a computer screen. But I feel like the hand-drawn animation gives them a weight. or And there's a way mm. you can do, you can add weight to them visually based on the framing. But I feel like these mobile suits are sapped of their personality. They feel very vapid. There's a commercial sheen to their depiction that makes them feel plasticky and even more like toys, but I do like the way they're colored. I feel like the colors really pop in Origin, CG or not. Like the characters look great too. There's a lot of style to the aesthetics. And I think the creators took a lot of, took pains to really emphasize that and make sure that the costumes or period appropriate and look really good because they hired a lot of extra staff to fact-check those things.
2: Agreed, definitely, definitely, yeah. And I, I, and to some extent, maybe we should cut the 3D CD some slack in that I think to some extent it looks artificial. It has that sheen, not through its own qualities, but because we're so used to to computer games that it has this kind of latest Call of Duty trailer, dubstep in the background kind of set of associations that... that um, the anime just probably weren't seeking. And, but they may be hard to avoid if that's your tool. I don't know.
0: The anime equivalent of J.J. Abrams is lens flares. <laughs> yeah. See, I thought you
1: were going to say they have no weight because they're in space, Steven.
0: True. And, you know, <laughs> they took pains to go, what is the science behind this? But then they've, you know, dumped whatever science they didn't want, which I totally respect, by the way. Let there be explosions in space. I personally yeah. am not hurt by that. <laughs> Let's talk about the veritable red comet line, though. Like, who says it? Is it Miguel Ortega? Are they the same person? I can never keep the black Tristars straight. But that line, whoever says it, is groan-worthy. And immediately I was like, all right, I'm in prequel territory now. I'm in very, a very commercialized prequel space. And this opening bit commits some cardinal sins for me when it comes to making a prequel. The callbacks to the source material are too forced, and this is true occasionally of the manga as well, and the scope of the narrative is too insular. Every character spotlighted here appeared in First Gundam. Like, do we really need to see Denim, Slender, and the Black Stray Stars fighting here? It makes the world feel small and the storytelling cheap. It's, it's, we're in Star Wars prequel territory here. But really, I feel like any prequel that's come out in the last 20 years suffers from these very same things.
2: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there is a there is a um the the sort of small world problem hangs around the ova i mean I, I it's often not at the fore i mean there are substantial amounts of the the ova adaptation which don't make me think this but yeah the opening the opening seems kind of does um i i i was going to point out that um for the for the most of the last decade and change that. The UK has been run by people who were members of one particular drinking club at the University of Oxford. Um, so th- sometimes history is like that, like sometimes, um, sometimes everyone who's going to, to do something is, uh, are together in one place. But that's actually probably to do with the particular bottlenecked way that the British society is, 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 is organised. Um, uh, and, and that can explain a lot in terms of, this is a story about the aristocracy of Xeon. Of and they are some of them are going to know each other but for the for the soldiers on the battlefield who are not you know not members of house ral or whatever um to be to be you know all all, all in the same airspace at once um is is a a bit rich and um and 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 red comet is the kind of nickname nickname that spreads through through propaganda and and media coverage really rather than a a soldier making a passing remark in, in in battle though pointing that out may be straying too far into the kind of cinema sins territory but i suppose i suppose i'm bringing that up not because it's unrealistic but because if the if the ova is letting you notice that then maybe you're not as engaged as as you could be I, i think the kind of cinema sins school of criticism is isn't very useful on it's on its own but if you find yourself having those kinds of thoughts when you're watching something that may be a sign that something else somewhere is, is maybe not working quite properly.
1: Right. I mean, verisimilitude has, you know, a function, absolutely, mm, uh, mm. you know, but but you know, it's kind of, it, we've already brought up speedrunning once, so I'll say, like, you know, if a speedrunner were to engage the text for every, for any breaks in the logic, that level of magnification is not <laughs> going to be useful because that's not really, I think, how you would normally experience that work.
2: No, no, never, no, no. No, and a good... You know, a, a, a good watching experience will keep you engaged enough that you're not.
1: But I'll, honestly, I will say the one thing that bothered me more than even the Red Comet line is, and this is kind of similar to the um, Star uh, Star Wars and the Millennium Falcon and the Parsecs, is this three times as fast as other mobile suits thing. Mm. We don't have speed comparisons for any other mobile suits, we don't, you know, we don't know why his mobile suit is faster. It is. It's just kind of thrown out, and it's a great example mm. of, you know, that that sort of thing. Where like, I would be okay with them bringing it up if, you know, they incorporated it into the fiction, into the militarism, in much in the way that at the origin incorporates, uh, you know, the supremacy or the I guess inferiority of the gun tanks and, mm. and gun cannons. Mm that sort of reorganization i love all that that's great it really you know flushes out and makes things logical in a way that uh, enhances my enjoyment of the setting and the themes but i don't know why we're talking about the the relative speed of sharzak mm. too it's like it's you're reading the, the back of the yes. box
2: yeah, it's the relative thing, isn't it? I mean, if if it was simply someone turning around from a console on a battleship to shout, it's very fast. You know, that would be completely. That's the kind of thing people do mm. say. when... Oh yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Adding in veritable there too really irks me because there's like a, there's a metaness or like the quality of reading the script that just like like I don't know.
2: It's my... something that the the translation you know accidentally stumbled into they punched up the level of of -hmm. of, of, of what the japanese script has there or not i don't know but but yeah the veritable and also veritable is also just not a word that again not a word that fighter pilots probably use very much when they're actually in the middle of combat i mean i i i haven't flown a fighter plane in the middle of combat but um i kind of imagine veritable is just not one of those words you drop
0: yeah, I wonder if in the new, uh, the new Top Gun flick, Tom Cruise is going to be <laughs> say like, that is a veritable fighter pilot there, Ace. I've never actually seen Top Gun, despite being a very big Gunbuster <laughs> a fan. A veritable Top Gun, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so cut to the title screen and an agitated Zeon Zamdaikun the night before he's set to make an important speech on space liberation. liberation.
3: Mm. Mm.
2: And this episode's called Blue-Eyed Castor, Um, which is another thing that frames it As about Casval, rather than about Sailor reminiscing and and Artesia.
0: Yeah, which is telling. And I I didn't realize that until you pointed it out, but I was like, yes, that makes sense. And I will say makes unfortunate sense, just the tilt toward Char. (laughs) Even though I don't think it's all bad by any stretch of the imagination. No,
2: and we'll both, I think, have things to say later about uh, about ways in which it's tilting in other directions. But yeah. I really appreciate the little
0: bit of characterization of Daikun we get. I, I wish we got a little more of it. This is something I felt was sorely lacking in First Gundam because contextually it's crucial backstory to the Zeon cause. I've said it time and time again, without Zeon Daikun, it just lost causism for fascism. Zeon Zamdaikun and his, I would say, quest for liberation or like space colonial liberation is vital to the politics of Gundam writ large. I do wish we get to hear Daikun ramble and wax political more here. Like, I want him to enumerate the grievances against the Federation and maybe outline or at least mention some of his ideological goals. In First Gundam, you have to do a lot of inferencing to understand why the Federation is decadent and corrupt. And in this case, I think it's beneficial to be more overt. There's a way in which you could do that. Is this that is too didactic, but I feel like for Gundam, it's necessary sometimes to be a little didactic. Mm. I don't mind the abstraction. I don't mind the Tomino off the wallisms all the time, but sometimes I feel like we need proper context. So, like this is what I wanted from the refugee arc in First Gundam, in those opening stretch of episodes.
2: Yeah, and it's I mean, if you imagine yourself into the setting. If you, if you, if the setting sparks your imagination, like the the surely one of the core things that's so. Uh, the the that makes the emotional kind of um, texture of a lot of the universal century the core universal century is this sense that as horrible a state as zion actually turns out to be you know th- there are there are elements in the origine- the thinking behind zion which have weight and merit you know this sense that that there are people in space who've been ill treated that earth is you know being polluted and um, the climate's under threat, which you know, becomes more and more pressing <laughs> thing to think about um, with every warm summer we have, um, and and that that runs right through the. You see, you know, the, in Charles' counterattack, in my view, let hit, let's drop the the hot Charles' counterattack takes, but you know, in Charles' counterattack, um, in my view, it's important to the film's effect that one simultaneously thinks you you shouldn't make it impossible to live on Earth. That's a really bad idea, but also you can understand someone being like people are not just people are not listening. They're not acting fast enough. Again, every, every warm summer, you think there's more, right? Um, they're not listening. They're not acting fast enough. What if we could just drop an asteroid and that would, you know, that would, that would fix it. And the, the, the <clears throat> pardon me, the tension uh, between those things is, is, is important to, you know, to, to the emotional charge of the the setting. Right. And, and just getting that sense that, zion zion may not be a wholly admirable man i think the way he's presented here doesn't make him wholly admirable but there is a there's a weight to his ideas is good it would be nice to hear a little bit more about the ideas totally yeah that would be great
0: (laughs) i would also love to know more about like the ideological splits between his disciples like a i don't know a Mm, menshevik mm. bolshevik divide i want to know what the royal family stands for probably not much and of course we know what the zombies want but i want to know more about some of these disciples
2: yeah, who who was being dispatched with an ice pick inside six? Like five years later, yeah. Yeah,
0: we know who our Stalin is, but who are some of our other characters?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, PMC, did you have a thought? I I thought I might have interrupted you. Uh,
1: no, I think um, I you know I wish I had more to say about about Daikun. I definitely think uh, there's a point here about sometimes in in our lives we we know people who want to who want to do something because they want to be seen engaging in that and it always comes across as very hollow uh and in in this case this is sort of the story version of that which is that we are we are told uh but not shown you Mm. know right this the the, to put it straightforwardly that yeah they have complicated arguments um much in the same way that you know we'll talk about later that we're, we're shown the the seedy bar life of you know rambo Rao and Hamon and Mm. Uh, all those other characters. Uh, there's there's a lot of, um, you know, look how quaint this is. Look how pre-war this is. Mm. Uh, that doesn't necessarily... I'm not convinced that mm. there's a lot of <laughs> substance when it comes to the, um, to I guess, the, the non-Zabi Xionic characters. Mm. But, you know, we'll, we'll see.
0: <laughs> now, Daikun specifically mentions um, his followers, or at least his close circle of followers as disciples. Plus, mm. he alludes to Golgotha, like... Framing Daikun literally as a Christ figure is such a Yasuhiko move. Like, remember, he wrote an entire manga about the life of Jesus, appropriately titled Jesus. I also like how this isn't a hagiography of Daikun. Like, he's not portrayed as some sort of saint. He's flawed and contradictory, and the origin isn't afraid to show that. Yas is very good with this, like these very human portrayals of individuals. That's why sometimes I rub against Char's characterization more so in the OVA, I think, because he is portrayed as some sort of hu- superhuman. And Daikun is portrayed as anything but. He is f- there, he's very hypocritical. You can see that in the portrayal. And the stuff he preaches isn't above reproach either. Like, we only get morsels of it. But, like, while liberation for the colonies is an admirable goal to strive for, there's strains of nationalism and space-noid supremacy baked into his ideology. So it makes sense that he would attract followers like the Zombies, And I like that mm. connection.
2: Yeah, and I, I think PMC's quite right to to that sort of sense of the pre-war that that in various ways the origin is invested in um, sort of the early the, the early 20th century and and the the sort of the, the nationalist phase of sort of the 19th century and the 20th century. Uh, you know, we, we were making we were making jokes just then about about sort of the, the history of Bolshevism, but equally, and I I've just been reading um, a, a little bit about uh, Polish nationalism in the 19th mm. century. I've been reading uh, pan pan Which I'm probably mispronouncing, apologies to to, uh, Polish listeners if there are any, but um, which is a long national epic of Poland, really interesting poem. And yeah, that sense that sort of national movements can be both engines through which people are understandably seeking for, you know, dearly sought liberation from, you know, really, really genuinely oppressive and horrible conditions, and also these ways in which others are defined and, um, you know, lines are drawn in society and then people who are on the wrong lines of those uh, you know the wrong side of those lines um wind up just as oppressed maybe um but um yeah there's there's an element of that there um and the comparison to jesus is is maybe pathetic with a b i mean it may maybe it may make daikon seems kind of slightly uh too 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 full of himself but yeah. but it is also it makes it certainly makes him seem very kind of overdramatic but then again he's right i mean he is going to be killed so um one has to hand it to the man Christ
0: exists in this timeline, right? Like, Christianity must be a thing.
2: Well, yeah, Gundam's quite cagey about. <laughs> quite cagey about almost all kind of cultural... It, it draws on all these things itself, but then perhaps for that very reason is very cautious about. But yeah, presumably this means that that Jesus... <laughs> I feel like the Golgotha
1: yes. illusion yeah. like, suggests first, it. First TV, yeah. first TV, I'm struggling to come up with something. Obviously, War in the Pocket is a Christmas show. Mm. True. Mm. So that's pretty strong evidence, I feel. Uh,
2: uh, yes. Yeah, Al thinks that Christmas is associated with, because he prays, doesn't he, at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't know to what extent that's, W80 uh, seems drawing partly from a particular kind of Americana as well, right. like the white picket fence sort of suburb. Yeah, and of course there's the, the, Giren's invocation of Hitler. Um oh, or the, Gehrin, right. the invocation of Hitler between Giren and Edwin Zabi towards the end of First Gundam. But, yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> what an interesting question. <laughs> Did Jesus exist in the, <laughs> in the pre-Universal Century timeline? <laughs> this reminds me yes, of the, the
0: combination we had w- way back when we covered Gundam Wing and Duo in the dub name drops Evil Knievel, suggesting oh, yes. that Evil <laughs> Knievel exists in the right, after-colony, yes. cent- after-colony <laughs> un- yes.
2: timeline. Mm-hmm. Yes, probably probably best not to get too wrapped up in that question. But it is a really <laughs> interesting parallel, and and you're, it's it it is very striking that Yas you know Yas actually made a manga about about Jesus, and, and um uh you know we see we see he's clearly got that kind of sense for, for historical parallel. Yeah,
0: Val, you had an interesting note about Lucifer here. It reminds me of a thought I had in Code Geass, mm. yeah, and, and it's, Arthur um, reacts violently to Suzaku. And I made yeah. the comment that animals often have a preternatural sense of who is morally right and who is morally wrong.
2: Yeah, it's, it's an odd, I know, obviously, obviously it's odd that the cat is called Lucifer, given, especially in what we've just been talking about, but, but also, um, uh, yeah, True. so the, the scene presents, so, so Daikon goes into the, the, the room where Caswell and Artesia are sleeping and, and says goodbye to them, particularly Artesia, he picks her up and, um, uh artesia's cat lucifer immediately is, has this kind of hostile hissing fur raised flight response and it's clearly meant to be indicating something for us but whether it's indicating that um you know lucifer just just is possessive and doesn't like other people getting close to artesia or or whether it's um it is meant to give us that kind of as you said about kokias yes, that sort of sense that you know that here's here's an animal Lucifer's role in much of the rest of the OVA is is kind of light relief and and, um, uh, this kind of cute animal that's around in the background. Um, Is that maybe meant to be telling us that the Undumb Daikon is at the very least not primarily interested in his children's welfare? I, I, I I don't know.
0: Not to say that Code Geass was always aware that Suzaku was the villain for the record. I feel like the show never really put its finger on the scale. That's a whole nother conversation, but I just wanted, I haven't talked about Code Geass in a while, so for any new listeners who's one, who might be wondering what are Steven's thoughts about Code Geass, there's one of them. <laughs> I will say, speaking about the scene you just mentioned, it's true what they say, like having a kid, like I have a daughter, she's 15 months old. These scenes do take on a new emotional dimension. Like I wonder how Gunbuster is going to affect me when we revisit it now that I have a daughter. Or a lot of these shows that deal with the relationship usually between a father and a daughter.
2: Mm. Oh, I'll think of giant robot. I mean, that's obviously her son, but but yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, she's lit in this scene um, as though she's glowing internally. There's a kind of golden light around her, um, which reminds me of 19th century idealisations of childhood and and that sort of thing. Um, but the way the scene is 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 in air quotes shot, um, you know, the way it's it's framed, the way it's boarded, um, does. Make it look like we're getting Caswell's perspective here again, and it's mm. his. There's a close-up on his his blue eyes, which the title has told us are important, and uh, maybe this is how Caswell sees Artesia, and she is she is the innocent in the rest of the episode, right? That she's the the innocent figure whose whose reactions um, help us gauge what's going on. So,
0: I'm very curious to track. Adela and Artesia's portrayal throughout the OVA. I really hope they don't
2: drop the ball on it.
0: I have my mm. worries, but I have not watched <laughs> to the end of the OVA, so I'm very curious about that.
2: And the, the, this is important, too, for how Shah or Kasval later sees his sister, because when they first meet each other on the quasi-battlefield in First Gundam, uh, and he looks back on it, he says, that, that couldn't be Artesia. She was, she was a gentler person than, than that, that woman. Um, so he clearly goes on you know, if you want to, to draw and we can maybe talk more about this later but if you want to receive the origin in a way that makes Cas a consistent character across these different um, these different uh, bits, these different bits of the Universal Century then then there is a continuity there he, he persistently thinks of her as, as an innocent, even when, when Sailor is, is, is not an innocent in First Gundam, and the show goes out of its way to, to, to show that um, uh, you know she she very much is part of the Federation forces by the end of the show in in, in ways that that Shah probably wouldn't have been imagining.
0: Now right after the scene we do get a title card situating us in you know in the timeline. It's UC 068 as PMC pointed out in a summary. Side three the Autonomous Republic of Munzo. Just as a, a, just about as he is beginning his speech, Daikun clutches his chest and topples over. He dies shortly after. Poisoned by a Zabi agent Privately, Degwin Zabi gives his Condolences to a bewildered And distraught Astrea. One question I have for both of you is Was Astrea named In First Gundam or any supplemental Material before Origin? Because I looked it up and at least in the Tomino memo, which of course was Tomino's rough outline of what First Gundam would have been if it went like 50 plus Episodes, she was called Tor Daikun
3: hmm.
2: I, I don't know the answer. I have a suspicion. This may be something that that goes to the origin and not not back any further. But but uh, PMC, do, do you know this? I
1: I don't think so because I, when it comes to spelling these things out, especially in I guess my, more my area of expertise in like, uh, like video game supplemental material, usually you have to have been involved in combat in some sort of way, and then you'll get a lot more about you in you know Gearan's greed <laughs> or. Yeah, the other yeah. games like um uh curly haman has like a whole campaign in one of those games <laughs> like, yeah. you can get all the you can get all the curly and you know zeon suits you want in in the saturn games uh you know or, or a lot of the others or even tem ray you know shows up prominently in some of the video games but i think you know unfortunately because of how she was uh you know i guess who she is i don't think she really shows up uh, and i'm just sort of cursorily checking some things and uh yeah i i think she, I think mm. Astraea is a, entirely a creation of the origin.
0: The reason I ask is because Astraea is also the name of the Greek goddess of justice. The only reason I stumbled across this was because I typed the name into Google. And of course the Gundam wiki didn't come up first. The Wikipedia for the Greek goddess of justice came up first. But given his ah, love of Greek mythology, think back to Arion, it would yes. be such a yes move to name her that. Yes. I think it's thematically Definitely. appropriate
2: too. It, it feels like it has his fingerprints on it. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes. Yes, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and there are several other. I mean, there is, there's kind of interesting things going on in the in the adaptation here. So this is, in the manga, um, it's the scene of of deg of of sorry of Daikon dying that is the first scene of of the the long long flashback. Mm. So so the um, the nighttime visit to the children's bedroom of Daikon as he's trying to draft his speech is another rearrangement. It's in the manga, but it's been brought. Earlier in sequence, um, uh, again presumably to set up that 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 scene in the in the manga, um, Sailor reminisces. We get a couple of establishing panels or pages of of Munzo, and then we go straight to this very good wordless sort of vertical page of mm-hmm. um, uh, Dycon Dycon dying as he speaks, which is obviously very very dramatic. Just before Degwin gives his condolences, uh, 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 Astrea, Casval, and Artesia um, uh, view daikon's body and this is a scene which is absolutely filtered through Artessia's point of view so there's there's a after a couple of establishing shots there's a shot in which the camera the conceptual camera is um located where Artessia's head would be she's she's standing to astraya's left she's obviously much shorter than astraya and she's looking up at her mother um and then the camera stays at astraya's at, at Artessia's eye level at the child eye level mm. um and and takes us forwards towards daikon's body um and so, so here is a scene which absolutely is focalized through Artessia's point of view rather than Casval's, That's important, I think and interesting and helps give us a bit more of that sense of this this being Artessia's story and Artessia's reminiscence as much as it's Shah's uh, or Casval's um so it does that um and it, and it it again, I think emphasizes the role of of Artessia as the the innocent and it's it's her breaking down that ends the scene. Understand I know obviously who wouldn't break down at that age faced with faced with the death of their child, their, their father. Um, the camera, when when the camera takes us forwards towards Dyker's body, the camera has a walking motion. Um, the kind of thing you get in an FPS. Um, uh, and this is important for, for one, at least, of, 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 of two reasons. Um, it, it roots us more in Artesia's perspective here, um, uh, where we're actually getting her physical motion, um, or it's a reminder of the presence of a camera not the actual presence of a camera of course because unlike in live action this is all just how it's boarded and then composited and, and, and photographed um digitally um but adding it implies something about what the ova wants to convey about verisimilitude or realism or about the idea that these are these are events at which you might have had a camera if that makes sense and there are other places in the episode where you can see imitation of of live action camera movements um so yeah I think that's that 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 perhaps tells us something about what the people making this the the slightly documentary or slightly live action feel that they wanted this to have
0: it gives us a sense of historicism as well first mm-hmm. Gundam mm-hmm. sometimes it's a few of the episodes of first Gundam played with this framing technique like the narrator would word things in such a way as if it were a documentary or if he had mm-hmm. the power mm-hmm. of foresight and hindsight
2: mm. yeah I and mean, it's it's um there's a much more subdued version of the sort of thing that um Takahashi K Takashi's works like Votoms and Daggram and, and Superlatively Flag are really, really interested in footage and um journalism and reporting. And Flag is of course entirely animated but pretending to be footage from different cameras. Dagram, uh Fang of the Sun Dagram, uh not only features a photojournalist, but when they made a summary film or films, I can't remember, it's framed as a documentary. Like it's, all, it's all framed as a, as a histo- historical documentary
0: that's how you do a like solid compilation film if you ask me people mm-hmm. have really good things to say about that Doug Grimm film it's come up in conversations mm-hmm. a few times with PMC and I in recent weeks
2: it's an interesting beast I mean, another approach is like there's a compilation film where they just left all the eye catches in and, and have a, it's a complete anarchy um, so the, <laughs> um, there's a joke about how one episode of the show wasn't broadcast in a particular region of Japan so people in that region didn't know something had happened. So there's so there's a joke in the film about people in that region not. It, it's it's complete. No, that's um, wild.
0: I love stuff like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's complete madness. Um, uh, I mean, and, and that's well, that's it's a bungle has its problems and flaws, but but um, uh, um, it, it is it is off the chain um, in, in in various ways. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm I'm taking us off track. Um, uh, there's there's a really good there's some very very good brief shots of citizens rioting at this point. Mm. Um, the um uh uh, there are people at the gates of the the residence where where um daikon's body and his family are and there's a wonderful moment where someone's shouting for independence through the gate um and and the shot cuts before his shout is finished to degwin which is really interesting um and degwin begins offering his his you know poisonous condolences to 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 astraya uh and just that decision to to cut before the end of this guy shouting is is a really nice moment, bit of kind of his the urgency, here's the the speed and the rapidity with which events are moving and and and, and again that sort of sense a historian could be writing it events moved very quickly in Windsor as soon as dycon uh, crowds formed very you know crowds rapidly formed outside the the residence and federation forces moved moved um, to suppress them from their barracks <laughs> you can you can imagine the sort of historical um account that might be written about this
0: now, after those riots break out, Jim Baral, one of Daikun's disciples, tells Estraya that the zombies killed her husband. In particular, he blames Sasaro, Degwin's conniving second son, Jimba, to protect Artesia and Castfall from harm, and the machinations of Degwin, commands his son, Ramba, to escort them to the Ral estate. Real quick, since I asked before, Sasaro, uh, unique to the origin he must be right I feel like he's the ultimate plot device that was dropped in yeah. here
2: I've never I've never come across Sassaro anywhere else I'm uh, with Gundam there could always be some obscure corner that you don't know about but um, to my yeah, knowledge me- yes
0: yeah maybe he like appears in the novelization or something
1: I'm pretty sure he is also a creation of the origin yeah I mean he literally is a walking
2: plot device <laughs> yeah. yes yes he's there to do a couple of specific things and then and then depart yes
0: I like what you're saying before, Thal, because it gives a lot of ammunition for my next take. But mm. I think the OVA is clearly Shar and Sailor's story. If there are quote unquote main characters, it's them. But if there's a protagonist, and the way I'm differentiating between protagonist and main characters is I think there's a more like emotional weight or emotional thrust on. The part of the story like pushing this character to the fore or it's the character who the audience is meant to sympathize with the most at that moment but I feel like Ral takes precedence at least with this first episode he plays a surprisingly big role in the origin I'm going to save my thoughts more on Ramba for later in the OVA because I don't have a definitive take just yet I need to see him in more scenes but I'm warmer on him here in origin definitely than I was in first Gundam (laughs) Real quick, my other take was, I don't think there are any main characters in origin. I think it's history. That's my pretentious academic take. I think it's (laughs) the process of historical change is the main character. If my wife were listening to this podcast now, she would roll her eyes. We would have similar (laughs) conversations. We could be watching a TV show, and she could turn to me, and she would go, what's your favorite character in this costume drama? And I would turn to her and go, I don't have a favorite character per se but I really like the process of historical change and then she just <laughs> <laughs> turned the TV off at anger
2: well that costume drama is a really interesting phrase because the origin is sort of a period piece <laughs>
0: she, to... she, she is a fan of period pieces yeah. not that I'm throwing her yeah. taste under the bus here but <laughs> she is not a fan mm. of Gundam
2: no that's yeah that's that's, that's interesting I, I know, it, it may simply be a product of the way that the because we get bits of the childhoods and early adulthoods of Casvella and Artesia. It's all kind of different people that are involved with their lives. Um, and that produces this sort of sense that the continuity is... The continuity is continuity. The continuity is change and and, and historical process rather than uh, them acting. Certainly in, in the plot, if you wrote out a list of things that happened um, in uh, episode one of the OVA... It is Hamon and Raal who who do things, um, and 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 the Zabis. But but uh, you know, among the people who are not being presented as villains, uh, it's Hamon and Raal who who, um, who decide what what happens. Um, but they're not. I mean, I suppose to something that would back up your case. I suppose Stephen is the way that um, Hamon and Raal are by no means entirely in control, and there are things that happen in 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 the OVA because other people take decisions or or because to some extent of chance
0: and when i was talking earlier about the the like the prequel itis that Mm. origin sometimes suffers from i like the focus on the characters who embody like world historical change those are the characters that should be in origin it's the minor characters who don't have who don't Mm. exercise that sort of world historical power that i wish were left at on the wayside Romba and Haman aren't the most important characters, but they do influence events significantly as they help shuttle off Artesia and Casval to safety. But by just looking at the fandom, Raul and Haman are the real standouts. People love them deeply, especially in the origin.
1: Yeah, I definitely feel like they're, they are meant to represent a sort of um, you know losing side of history, so to speak, in terms of the, the conflict of pre, pre-war, Zeon, pre-war, Munzo. I wish I knew what they cared about. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and we, I think um, uh, we, we, we might touch a little later on, on what the origin doesn't tell us about why Raul stays in Zion and turns up later piloting, you know, a, a suit that looks like a Zaku but is blue. Um, yeah,
0: I want to like Raul so much more because I like his energy and I like him mm. aesthetically. Raul, after a hard day of work, like sitting back in in a chair in some dank-ass bar, just, like, <laughs> tired, with, and tired with world weariness. That's energy yeah. I like, and that's energy I bring to every room I occupy. <laughs> and I like how he's not... You know, he's a little paunchy. He's tired. I, I like the mustache, too. I just wish I had a greater sense of interiority. That could be a complaint, though, for every single Gundam show in existence, though. Not that I'm giving Raul a pass. I just... I wish I had more uh, interiority of these characters, Mm -hmm. which is another point for my argument that, again, there are not necessarily characters in this, or if there is a character, it's history, which I feel like is a reoccurring trend in a lot of Yasuhiko-penned works. So at this point, Raul has the kids in protective custody in his car. He has a convoy, an armored convoy, and they're interrupted by protesters, and they're intercepted too. Even though Raul fires warning shots from his machine gun, the, f- the fans at that point are probably hooting and hollering as he busts out <laughs> that huge-ass machine gun. The rioters are not deterred and surround the limousine gawking at Daikun's family.
1: I have I have a, a comment here. Yes. Is it possible to fire warning shots in a closed space colony? Excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I, mm. I couldn't help but think, you know, like because I, I get the idea of a warning shot. You shoot in the air. Mm. Now, mm. that's... Famously, still risky. It is a common campaign around New Year's time to tell people not to fire guns into the air at New Year's mm, because mm. those bullets do, in fact, come down eventually. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: Welcome spa- to America,
0: though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the space colony presents a different problem. I'm yeah. sure someone could work out the physics problem where it would enter the middle of the chamber, the uh, gravity would change, it would probably keep moving because it would have momentum that would keep it, it would go somewhere else. I don't know what all the physics are. I'm not going to work them out. I'm sure someone could.
0: maybe well, they maybe had has. the science consultant on here. They I wonder si- I wonder if
1: he had anything to say That's here. what I'm getting to, is that I want to know if the science consultant mm. thought about mm. this problem. And that's really the end of my thought. We don't need to work yeah. it anymore. Well,
2: you get, get Gerard O'Neill in. It's Gerard O'Neill, isn't it? The, yeah. Get him in here and ask him. So, So if there's a situation in which to save someone's life, you need to fire a mounted light machine gun um in the air (laughs) like uh, what happens to the bullets
0: (laughs) o'neill was too concerned about how sexual intercourse would occur in space Mm. he couldn't Mm. be bothered to answer well o'neill said
1: that the colonies would avoid conflict right there would never be
2: any conflict he (laughs) said there would never
0: these these would they would never be turned into military bases
2: i'm quoting him almost exactly here a very comforting thought i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) I'm, i'm trying not to think about you know recent recent developments in you know, satellite anti-satellite missiles and <laughs> the, the ongoing real life militarization of space. But yeah. So these protesters are pro dykon protesters. You know, they're not they're not a threat necessarily directly to to, to Daikon's family. But they are obviously they're holding the convoy up. And they're clearly really terrifying, completely understandably. Um and there's a couple of really interesting shots of them peering into the car. Um, uh Kasval um spreads himself out uh so so artesia and astraya creep into a corner of the car and Kaspar has spread himself out of kind of in front of them which you know, tells us something about how he feels about his family and his role in it um uh if you want and so obviously characters are you know, th- these aren't people these these are artifices designed to make us feel things or do things in in, in a story if you want to um do the quite enjoyable task of drawing connections between different bits of the Universal Century in the way that these things can become more than some the of their parts um, you can think about the way Shah Casval later relates to you know to the masses to the population uh, in something like Shah's counterattack. when we hear him saying I wish I didn't have to do this kind of broadcast or that scene where he, he gets on the train and there's a very interesting interaction with the kind of general populace um it's, it's not hard to draw links between this, this very young experience of um, even the people who are sort of on your side, kind of, are A, in the way, B, terrifying, and, and, and are kind of looking at you. They're very specifically looking uh, into the car, which is, which is interesting. If you want to do that, and you don't have to. But yeah, it's, it's a very, very interesting scene. Yeah.
0: Now suddenly, Caecilia, mounted on a horse and brandishing an ornate pistol, appears and disperses the protesters, even though there's no clear connective tissue here, other than both figures are complicit with fascism, I can't unsee the scene with Liam Neeson on horseback overlooking Krakow as it's being ransacked by Nazis in Schindler's List. Um, there's a similar framing going on. They're both looking atop a hill. They're looking down. Chaos, in some respects, is breaking out. Of course, the mm-hmm. chaos that's breaking out in Schindler's List is of an entirely different dimension than the chaos breaking out in the streets below Caecilia. But nonetheless... I could not get it out of my mind, so I put it on paper when I wrote down my notes.
2: It, it's it's an interesting comparison, and in some ways, it, it helps us think about the the differences. But I think the the way the origin is so engaged with the twentieth century makes it hard not to to think of these things, right? I mean, yeah. The there's a sequence of the 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 military police unit that Cecilia leads um, charges down the hill and disperses the protesters who who start kind of tumbling over the um, barrier at the edge of the road and so on. And this is, it's really, really beautifully animated. It, it's its really hard to animate crowds, like large groups of people involving lots of different humans moving all at once. That's hard. Horses are a notoriously, you know, notoriously really, really difficult thing to, to animate by hand. And um, this sequence is kind of a triumph. Um, it's really, really impressive, I think. Um, I looked this this up on Sakuga um and uh, it's attributed to Kazuhide Kazuhide Tomonaga. Um, I, I, I'm afraid I don't know very much about them. I'm not enough of an animation person to know about them. But but let's name them because it is a, you know it's a really impressive um, bit of work, and it does convey how scary mounted police are. I I, I do you guys do, do urban police use horses in in the United States? Yes yeah unfortunately they're usually
0: armed to the teeth and in tanks nowadays but uh, yeah (laughs) we do have police on horseback yeah
1: i mean i think part of it too is also you know so we're we're in new jersey we're also near philadelphia Mm. philadelphia Mm -hmm, in particular mm -hmm. still has a both both police wise and tourist wise a population of horses because it's calling back to revolutionary war period tourism and uh, sentiments uh but like i think the the last time i can think of a horse cop coming up in headlines was a few years back i believe at a uh, when managing a crowd at a sports stadium a philadelphia sports fan punched a horse so that <laughs> right. is the answer is they're still around and philadelphia is still philadelphia yeah that's such that a is, philadelphia
2: yes. ass story that does accord with with everything i've heard about about mm. philly sports fans yes, yes. I, <laughs> a, I have been to philadelphia and i I, ah. I thought it was lovely but but oh it's um, great I'm, I'm a fan yeah yeah it's a love, great great city but um uh, but then, I, you know, I wasn't at a sports event so, so yeah, you know, I, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, and I used to live in um, an area of London near where the Metropolitan Police, who are the uh, not particularly admirable, in my view, um, uh, police who um, uh, police all of London and also provide the UK's anti-terrorist policing, where they where they exercise their mounted uh, mounted police. And um, uh, so, I, I would, you know, I'd walk past you know, pairs of mounted police on on exercises and. Yeah, police horses are are scary, scary things. You would you would not well unless you're a Philly sports sports fan. You would yes. not want to tangle with, with. And and evidently, the citizens of Munzo are not um, as as uh, as well prepared to, to to tangle with these guys. And and in, in fairness, Caecilia's um, unit. Um, we see them in, in more close up towards the end of the episode. They're wearing the those kind of flat, floppy sort of military berets. They have um, pers- personal personal um automatic weapons so they have submachine guns they are they're clearly military police they look like their gendarmes or, or um you know they they're, they're soldiers who are working as police or s- security and frankly they they look like the kind of of units who go around wiring people up to car batteries and 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 waterboarding them and so on uh they they look really really grim um and uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't want to tangle with them. But this 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 kind of cavalry charge, effectively, un unarmed cavalry charge downhill, also is that kind of old Europe nineteenth, twentieth century um uh Kaecilia is wearing a winged Valkyrie helmet. I mean there's, there's definitely this sort of um uh pre pre World War Two Europe um element uh to, to what we're looking at here. Um, there's a there's another interesting slight tweak in the script um when Astriya calls Cascilia dashing uh Kassilia says uh you, you know you, you mean dashing for a woman i assume uh, and then in in the manga she says this is because I was raised among so many so many brothers you know so many men um and so few so few women um in the oVA she she makes a more general remark that this is you know this is the zabi way It's an interesting tweak. my theory is that umkycelia at this point in the oVA is actually also kind of an innocent like artesia um she's she's being dashing and gallant and rushing around on a horse and the decision she's about about to make um is the beginning of a series of events that make her less innocent well we can discuss that as the uh yeah. as the OVA goes
1: on i think you're absolutely right that in the beginning of this she is positioned as being not dissimilar to dozel to someone who, mm. who thinks mm. they're just doing the the thing the family thing and they're going to follow in the footsteps of their family
2: yeah and and to be clear i you know I assume that her day job probably means going around and beating people up and you know and at, at at some remove or other you know her men are 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 just using force to make people do things but but I think she she thinks that she's um she's she's sort of gallant and 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 chivalrous and 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 so on and um and that's that's why she doesn't um take Daikon's family into custody she lets them go
0: I like how you pointed out the differences in uniforms because the aesthetics are really consistent when it comes to uniforms in this show. And even just looking at the uniforms, you could kind of see the political tensions that exist here. Because remember, the Autonomous Republic of Munzo has some separation from the Federation. We can presume the political tensions and the cultural tensions that have existed between the Earth and this particular space colony have been growing larger and larger and larger. And they, presumably they are cultivating and have their own militia and you could see the differences between this militia, these militia uniforms and the federation uniforms mm-hmm. and like you pointed out, these zombies all have these very aristocratic and ornate uniforms mm-hmm. speaking of their quest for more power and perhaps their quest for dominance
2: absolutely absolutely and and it is some um, and the, you, you repeatedly see interactions between the the local forces and the federation and it, it quickly becomes clear that As with many country names, you know, autonomous is telling you what this republic is not in the same way that the United Kingdom is not particularly united and that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is is not very democratic um, and arguably not a republic and isn't run by its people. and, again, you know, when people name countries, they often name them assertively and aspirationally, and, and one presumably is meant to imagine that Munzo is, uh, is similarly you know, not, not really autonomous, but, but has some degree of sort of, uh, yeah, clearly there's some kind of local military force which is in, in some subservient relation to the, the Federation.
0: And these are world-building details that I just lap up, and Yasuiko mm. has such a keen eye for detail that this is one of the reasons why I enjoyed the manga prequel
2: volume so much. Mm-hmm. And, that's and the bits yeah, in the OVA, it. too. And and you and you mentioned last episode there there was uh, one member of staff was in charge of keeping all the uniforms consistent and attending to make sure that the right insignia was on on each soldier and that, and that sort of thing which is which is both a very kind of crusty grand Gundam OVA thing but also kind of cool and and and, and interesting so.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it was specific to the origin because there's also commercial imperative behind this too, just making sure the action figures will appease the fans. Star Wars has mm. something similar where people at Lucasfilm, like there are people whose jobs are just to maintain the integrity of the lore. As boring or as, as exciting as that might sound. I, I can go either way, and I'm very much positioned against commercial interest when it comes to art, but I could also, if offered that job, you know what? Maybe, I'll take it. <laughs> Later that night, at the zabi family estate sasro slaps kycelia for letting the Daikoons escape she's pissed like, get his ass I'm, I'm not usually not on kycelia's side sometimes at first gundam she steals the show but man i'm like get his ass kycelia sasro <laughs> sucks and we've only seen him for like a minute i have i have a, speaking of lore i have a lore question here what happened to castle grayskull from first gundam yeah <laughs> Be- because this mansion certainly is not it did the zabi's build it after they came to power or did Yasuhiko erase it from the origin because I feel like it was in the manga I didn't actually mm-hmm. do any fact checking when I wrote this down. For listeners at home I'm referring to the very malevolent looking like headquarters of Zabi that's
2: in 0079 So my my only comment would be that if you look at the shapes of the buildings in which the daikons and the it's, it's the building with the tower attached to it to which mm-hmm. the family are sent and also the building the Zabi's live in but interestingly, not where the Riles live, but the, where the, the the Daikons and the um, Zabis live. Those buildings have shapes that are kind of moving towards the shape of that True. that very extravagant. But that that castle is, of course, one of the elements in First Gundam, which looks like it's straight out of um, uh, you know Zambot Three. Uh, it's a sort of building that um, or or Daitan Three. You know the the, the mechanical villains in Daitan Three could could use. Two shows which I actually quite like, I should say. I'm not. That's not a dunk on those shows. I, I, I would happily speak up for Daitan or, or Zambot any any day of the week. But um, uh, uh, in First Gundam, it really feels like this sort of here is the spirit of '70s super robot villainy, kind of showing through briefly in in this more more historicized setting.
0: And I like when architecture reflects ideology. It always does. But I don't mind when it's overt. Like, the imperial era in Star Wars is very monolithic, and I think that works. clearly modeled after, like, Albert Speer's architecture under the Third Reich. I just feel like that that particular building was a little too overt for my taste.
2: There's a building um, down the road from where I'm talking to you from, which has a slightly orientalizing air, and the weather vane is uh, an elephant and um uh it was it was built to train civil servants um for the indian civil service um and you know that that for better or worse and mostly worse you know that that building is telling us something about about Britain's history and its relationship with the rest of the world um and just walking past it and not noticing is is you know it's an abnegation in its own way of of, uh, of a chance to think about that so yeah. There are. There's a lot in real life too. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Rals live in a neoclassical mansion of some kind, yeah. rather than one of these weird space space buildings.
0: It's very status quo. You, actually, speaking of that, not the status quo of the Rals, but I was thinking about like, architecture. I didn't like in First Gundam in Double Seventy Nine. I hate the architecture of Texas gun uh, Texas Colony, but I feel like the manga <laughs> reclaims it. Like the kitschiness makes sense because yes, mm. as adds just enough context. I'm like, yes, this makes a lot of sense, and I'm really happy he did that because mm, it, it, mm. it sticks out like a sore thumb for me with, in 1st Gundam, even though it does give some loose explanations of why this Texas colony would exist. But I, I was really happy with its treatment in the origin.
2: Yes, it's clearer in the origin why, why that's there, and then, then it kind of falls into place. Yeah.
0: Totally. yeah. The solemn pomp and circumstance, zianzam Daikun's funeral proceeds. Kasval and Garma have a game-recognized game moment as Daikun's followers bid their leader farewell. In the middle of a conversation between Dozel and Sasro after the funeral and they're driving back home, a bomb planted underneath their car goes off, killing Sasro, and somehow just injuring Dozel to the point of comedic relief.
2: So there's a, there's a really interesting resonance between Gama and, <clears throat> not between Gama and Shah, but between the Gama seeing Shah at the funeral, because... A key moment in First Gundam, and one that then gets recalled in, say, the Earth team, is Gama's funeral. So, mm-hmm. so Char seeing Gama at this funeral is, is is this kind of gentle, you know, you realise that when you first heard people shouting Sieg Zion in 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 First Gundam, it was it was Tahirin's speech at at, um, at Gama's funeral. So, so that, that's quite elegant. It's, it's it's not in your face, but I, I kind of like that. That's that's kind of fun. I mean, in a, in a, a kind of horrifying, sad way.
0: I'm very curious how the Garma stuff's gonna play out in the OVA. We have some Garma fans coming on in future episodes, and I was a fan of how it was handled in Origins, so I'm curious Mm -hmm. how the OVA treats it.
1: One thing that was interesting for me, OVA versus the manga, was I, you know, now I typically read before I go to bed, so this could be a a literacy or comprehension issue on my part, but the OVA I felt made it much more explicit about who killed Sasro than the manga did <laughs> like I, I honestly i was if you had asked me after reading the manga i would have said well you know there are several people it could have been you know it, it's almost kind of not important in the way that we never see the person holding the smoking gun when it kill when it comes to the murder of daikun mm, uh mm. but here we there's no question <laughs> it's, mm, it's mm. casilia <laughs> which maybe you know in, in a similar parallel is meant to uh bring forth her willingness to uh, to dome, you know, four twenty no scope headshot,
2: uh, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is this is the be- this is the beginning of her career of, of 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 killing family members, isn't it? And and um, it's it's well, you know, the in as in in real life, the, the you learn a lot morally about someone's character by the way they respond to to extreme events, and what we've seen of Caiusilia now is that she she appears as a person who thinks she's very dashing and chivalrous. And her response to that you know obviously horrible and completely unjustified physical violence from sasro is that she hasn't killed <laughs> um so so you know we're, we're immediately seeing Caeselia, the route Caeselia is going to take um uh yeah yeah uh, the, uh, to, to give the um uh to give the ova it's due it really does neatly do the immediacy of the bomb like it, it's delivered in the middle of the conversation it has the shocking quality of um of a real bombing i'm Sorry to say you know, that, that it's not a nice thing to think about, but it has that 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 shocking quality, and that would work better in the dub because, of course, in the subtitles there's a line that ends in a, in an a, end dash, um, uh, so you can see in the subtitles that a line is about to be cut off. Um, but but this is one one place where listening to this either with good Japanese comprehension or, or or dubbed actually gives you a cleaner and better experience.
0: Much to Jimba's anger, the media and public blame Sasaro's death on the Rawls. Watching the zombies manipulate the messaging and the public endorsing the easy-to-swallow narratives being delivered to them is both, from my perspective, fascinating and chilling. There's so much historical precedence for this. Really, if you just look at human the way humans behave, this just tracks completely. I was thinking of the Nazis torching the Reichstag and then blaming it on the communists in the 1930s, for those of you who know your German history. And I'm sure Yasuhiko is pulling on similar precedents, if not that one. By and large, people like simple narratives with clear binaries, good guys and bad guys, to explain complex political situations. This environment is fertile ground for conspiracy theories, and it's telling how quickly and efficiently the zombies use it to their advantage. Really smart writing here.
2: Yeah, and, and, they're, and they're using it to their advantage, even though apart from Caecilia, they didn't plan it. You know, Degwin and, and Giran are just in there immediately, being like, well, you know, the people who killed Sasro who do you think it might have been? Could have been the Ralls, couldn't it? Pres- presumably. This is the sort of, <laughs> the sort of world we're, we're meant to imagine. And um, So, yes, they, they didn't even set the fire in this case, but they're, they're straight there to, to use it.
0: And no one would accuse Jim Burrell of doing this if they actually met Jim Rall, <laughs> And I barely know the guy, but he is, he's not <laughs> capable of pulling this off. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He,
2: he comes across as entirely hapless in this-
0: even though he is, he can be armed to the teeth at a moment's notice. <laughs> a crying Artesia is distraught because Lucifer, her cat, is at, at their house, their, their family house alone. Captain Rawl, Ramba, promises to rescue him and with a spring in his step, orders his men to commence Operation Rescue Lucifer. Independent of whether Ramba deserves this type of sympathetic framing, this is a very anime-ass scene, the type of which we often don't get in Gundam. I thought it was kind of cute, and I actually, I like the the chibi style, like cat scratching later on, you rarely see stuff like that in Gundam.
2: There's a really nice uh, detail, when when Artesia is explaining to, to Ral what she needs, astria is clearly really, really embarrassed, Astria is clearly mortified that her daughter is asking, is asking this professional soldier to go and rescue, rescue their cat, and, um, Uh, artesia says the cat can't go to the toilet properly unless she's there and astraya's head sort of falls to one side there's a very gentle kind of good (laughs) good bit of background character animation um and just as just as parents frequently mortify their children that you know this scene does capture a a very common sort of social experience sometimes your kids mortify you and 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 um, uh, and um and so this is one of the scenes that actually kind of speaks to a very normal sort of social experience it, it, on that level. It works quite well. Um, this, this,
0: it's inclusion. I, I liked it. The scene independently of independent of anything else, but it does highlight a big issue. I have with the origin OVA, the pacing, or I guess just its existence because the prequel manga, the three volumes of the prequel manga works so well because they're in conversation with a much larger story left by itself. I feel like it does lack purpose and focus And this first episode does seem to ramble a bit, and it's at these moments that I'm like, where are we going? Because it feels almost directionless.
2: Yeah, it's a good pun, rambling, isn't it? Um, I was was
0: workshopping that. (laughs) I've been workshopping a Revel pun and a Ramba pun, so I got something hopefully cooking up.
2: Yeah. There's a fragmented quality to the opening scenes, which works quite well. You're you're kind of thrown into um, Daikon... You meet Daiken, then he dies. Then there's all kind of all this chaos, and that works quite well. And then, as soon as the immediate rush of, uh, you know, Daiken's been assassinated, people are rioting, uh, gun tanks are c- crushing them in the streets. Like, how do we evacuate Daikan's family? Who's responsible for it? Uh, once that rush of events is out of the way, you kind of immediately notice that there is this slightly um, moment-to-moment quality that, that, as you say in the, in the in the original manga, you're reading this, having just been reading. The events of First Gundam, as as retooled by by Yas. Um, so yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you on this one. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm curious if future volumes will work better mm. independently mm. of the larger story, or if these, these these issues will be even worse.
2: I suspect it, it it must have made cutting the TV version even more
3: difficult. <laughs> but,
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't believe there are any added scenes either. They're either reordering reord- the scenes or choosing when to cut it. Afterwards, Degwin schemes with his two oldest sons. He urges Giran to master the art of duplicity and to stand back and let events unfold to their their family's advantage. Degwin's characterization origin is a lot less sympathetic than in First Gundam, which I like. Not like he's the hero of First Gundam or anything like that, but I feel like he's positioned almost as a liberalizing force in a way. Like he's not entirely on board with the direction gearin's taking things. And in the, in the manga, that's true, too. But then when he's double-crossed by Rebel, he's he shows his true self, and he's like, fuck this guy, I'm taking the Federation <laughs> down. And I really like that, because he's shown for who he is, a scheming bastard who will stop at nothing to maintain power and protect his family's legacy.
2: Yeah, yeah, and his role in First Gundam is... is and there's a, I think there's a sense at the end, isn't there, that though he may be horrible it would be good if he could get to negotiate with the Federation and it's unfortunate that he doesn't because that means the war goes on for longer and, and you know, people, people carry on dying and so on. I, I think I'm, I'm sorry to say, and it's probably is, is because I'm very prejudiced. His character design in the original Gundam kind of conveys that this, this might be someone who's, who's lived a life of sort of um, fairly heinous acts. And, and he's this kind of decrepit, um aging dictator. Um but yeah, for, for the, the 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 manga realization of him definitely makes it completely explicit that this, this is this is someone who um is is will, will will stop at nothing and um uh he's he's doing all the things that he's he, he may one day come to regret, but he certainly doesn't regret them yet. And uh, the the other thing I wanted to mention here was um and this is not a developed point by any means, not analytical, but I, I just really liked there's a quiet kind of mostly Woodwind um uh, piece of music behind this scene and I just think it's its a really neat piece of music works really well with the very somber framing of the the rioting in the city going on and, and the um, the Zab is scheming away
0: actually when he said that I thought of Nero playing the fiddle as Rome Burned and then I remembered Yasuhiko <laughs> yeah. has a Manga dedicated to Nero. I paused there because I wasn't sure if it was Caligula or Nero, but no, it was no, Nero. I, I think it's
2: Nero, isn't it? Yes. Well, the, the problem with the ass, of course, is that if you see a historical parallel, you may well find he's already he's already been there in yeah. <laughs> in another work. He's he's clearly <laughs> so, so engaged with 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 historical fiction in particular, and and not just the obvious ones. I think things like the the Spanish Civil War and, and so on. Is really yeah, good. clearly someone with a really wide ranging interest in.
0: yeah deep cut might not be the appropriate term to use when you're talking about history but he certainly pulls from a lot of deep cuts historically in his works meanwhile a drunken and cat scratched ramba stumbles to club eden where he encounters a lieutenant tachi standing guard this bar is a combination of i would say cheers and casablanca everyone knows ramba's name here and haman is cut from a very femme fatale Archetype. I wouldn't say she's mm-hmm. a femme fatale here, but you could see the connective tissue bet- yes. between that archetype and her portrayal. Mm. Ramba asks Haman for a favor. He needs to get Jimba and Daikun's kids safely and secretly to Earth, and Haman has connections. I, I'm not going to lie. I do like the two of them together. The aggressive romanticization of Ramba is a problem, and I really don't like Haman and First Gundam, but they're a fun pairing, and they bring some energy to this episode.
1: I think the character in this episode that really stands out because if we're going to have more Ramba, I'm on, and, and you know I can express more of my feelings about uh, about Ramba. A character that came up as being important in the prequel material of the origin, historically in the production history, is Lieutenant Tachi, who apparently mm-hmm. was you know formative for Yas in terms of going down this road. Yeah, and I think what's really dark and sad. Now remember, if you haven't watched First Gundam in a while. Lieutenant Tachi is the character who really shows up in the post-Ramba episode, where where Haman hatches the plan to drive in with the hovercraft, and the, you know only like the tops of the tanks and so forth and so on. And uh, and Tachi is the soldier who is her, you know, first in command or her subordinate, and who shows up dedicated to you know, pretty much go on a suicide mission. You know, that man, the sort of, uh, you know, hopelessly smitten for Haman, working bouncer for the bar, doing favors for them in the logistics in the shipping area of the colony. Uh, it's just kind of, I don't know. It's it's kind of sad to think that this dude's been on this beat for 11 years as a <laughs> first Gundam, you know, at least. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. know how long he's been on it before. And um, I guess the, that's the thing, you know, maybe to get back to our sort of ongoing touching on the prequelitis stuff is that to me, that's the sort of, um, you know, I want to know what Tachi would have been like here. Not that he's always been the same, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to, I want it to fit. And that's why I keep saying like the zombies are fun because as, as thou mentioned, we can see how Casselia starts on the road to being who she is in Mm -hmm. first Gundam. Whereas Tachi here, the most i can say is that i think tachi has more combat experience by the time we meet him in first gundam <laughs> he looks weathered and he first looks gundam. weathered as hell but besides that he is still ready to go on a suicide mission for haman yeah and that's not really changed
2: you're right yeah yeah it, it, it is a, it is a little sad when you when you put it like that I mean, it's interesting to see him and and um I suppose the flip side of prequelitis is that for someone who likes Gundam, there is something quite fun about kind of seeing these characters in their, in their, their younger days. But yes, there, there is a, it's a good contrast to the zombies there that we're, we're not really seeing how Tachi becomes Tachi. We just see him be Tachi. Yeah. and He sprang yeah, fully yeah.
1: formed already. Yeah. Uh, absolutely desperate for Haman's attention.
2: But I do. I I agree with Stephen that there. That this is almost the only place in the episode where there's any. I suppose what you might call banter, um, and broadly speaking, it's nice to watch something which isn't too defined by banter. Because I think you know, present day Hollywood is 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 all banter all the time in some genres. But um, uh, you know the right amount of banter in the right place is nice. And Hamon and and Raoul actually have. You know they 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 have a kind of back and forth here. Um, where they're they're not saying some things to each other and playing a bit with what each other, you know, that each is playing a bit with what the other one knows, and that, that that's quite fun. It works quite well. It's 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 well written. Um, uh, it comes across f- well in the manga and 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 works neatly in 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 the OVA adaptation. Um, so that yeah, it's good to see them there, and and that I guess um, uh, that is perhaps perhaps it's useful to contrast that to, to Lieutenant Tachi as well, right? The, the, the these Hamon and Rao don't have exactly the same relationship in this bar scene as they do in, 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 in mm-hmm. First Gundam. We're seeing we're seeing two people who who do already very much know each other but don't have quite the I and mean, in First Gundam they're they're completely in sync and, and you know they're they're clearly a long, kind of long, long lasting couple in a way that they 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 aren't here. Well then
0: there's clamp too. We can't forget about clamp. Yo, yeah.
1: Yes. Alright, I, I don't want to dwell too much on, on dub voice actors. I think um I think Steven might have had a note about another dub w- choice. Wendy Lee as Kaecilia yeah. always
0: throws me for a loop. For those of you who don't know, Wendy Lee's Faye Valentine from Cowboy Bebop.
1: There's like an right. era of dub actors, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, where you would have this like this side character who would just have an incredibly nasally voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Gundam Wing, this is General Septim. Uh, and in first Gundam dub, this for me is Clamp, who is like quintessentially... Your nasally subordinate. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, hey, do you want to go do you you know you want to do a gorilla mission or we engage in close combat in the white base? And Clamp is like, yes, sir, yes. <laughs> you know, kind of this mustachioed subordinate mm-hmm. who's ready to indulge your darkest desires. Mm. Uh, and here he has like a very friendly voice, and he's just your local bartender. Mm. Um, now, maybe what I was just saying, maybe that does speak more to how does Clamp go from being the bartender to being. The, you know the the commando mm. captain mm. that's i think more of a journey and maybe that means i i well i do like clamp here better dub choices dam- be damned
2: and he is he is one of the few characters who expresses uh a, 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 an actual ideological sympathy right because he says you know oh but if we get the chance to fight the feds you know then then maybe i maybe i won't be a bartender anymore and he doesn't say exactly that but and it, it is um uh again without this making this about dubs versus subs because we've talked about how that you know they both have their strengths and also ultimately learn japanese if you care that much but um uh it is the nature of the japanese voice acting industry for anime that they have a wider pool of talent so you know you will hear a wider range of voices um uh, and uh, and i guess that's you know that's another another factor in the in that in that uh, in that long and complex um, uh dance
0: Kaecilia and her men at this point approach the Raule estate. She demands to see Casfall, Daikun's son. Despite Jimba's protests, the meeting proceeds. She attempts to browbeat him into taking up residence under the Zabi's watchful eyes. Casfall doesn't beat an eye when Kaecilia pins him to the couch and then handcuffs him. I'm going to save some of my shar thoughts for later. Everything... Everything for me regarding Shar is still in an incoate stage, just because it's still episode one. But does anyone want to weigh in here with some hot Caswell takes? I mean, it's
2: impossible to watch this scene, if you've seen First Gundam, without, without thinking of, of the fact that Shar is eventually going to kill Kaecilia. Uh And this is also the beginning of the more substantive characterization of Caswell. We've had a few moments like him him spreading himself in front of trying to defend um, Artesia and Australia in the car earlier, but really we haven't seen very much of him in the episode so far as, as, a, as an actor or, or a person in dialogue <coughs> pardon me the, um, the fact that he doesn't crumble, you know, Caecilia talks to him initially as a child, and he immediately protests and says no, talk to me as an, as an equal um, uh, it, it disconcerts her, and it's, it's disconcerting to watch and he he he, he's clearly dressed it's the middle of the night he's dressed up he's he's put his waistcoat on he's he's and he's dressed as again before the war old old europe he's dressed as children used to as a miniature adult um you know he's 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 in formal wear um uh and uh it's you know there's it's it's disconcerting and unsettling um there's something admirable about the fact that he's willing to stand up to Caeselia, um and and you know he's he's trying to stand up for his family um but in both the manga and, and as adapted he's making his stand on his status i mean he's 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 saying you know you've got to do what i say and, and do what i want because i'm a member of the daikon family which is not you know a particularly attractive um uh, thing to do and then from a purely pragmatic point of view Shara is often you know Shara is often this cool character people people are often take with taken with how cool he is an important aspect of his appearances in First Gundam and in Zeta and in Charles Counterattack is that things don't always go the way he planned. Um and, you know, he cuts a deal with Cayselia in this scene. It's not a deal that works out particularly well for, for the Daikan family. Um you know, <laughs> so there's also that, you know, he comes across as kind of disconcerting, but also um he might just not be making a very good decisions here.
0: Kaecilia conferences with Ghirin the next day, informing him of the boy's resilience as her older brother casually plays a computer game of Go. He doesn't give her the credit she thinks she deserves. The tension between them is palpable. I gotta say here at this point, like, of course Ghirin would be a capital (laughs) G gamer. Interestingly, this scene was changed from the manga. Yasuhiko commented on this in an interview, so I'll let him talk here. Quote, In the manga... When Kaecilia comes to deliver her report, he's pruning his garden, but you feel like, why would he be doing such a thing? It's rather dull. When I thought about what Giron would do in his private time, I naturally thought of simulation games. Or what about the game of Go, which is said to be deeper than chess or shogi? It's the formative process that leads him to becoming a dictator, so I thought he must have undergone various types of training. We gave such a things a try, so long as they didn't turn into bad jokes. And I, I like the change. It, it gives and a little bit more personality. I would like to say
1: that having flipped through a lot of videos of games, I believe... I would have to say that this is probably a Sega Saturn go.
0: That is my professional opinion. Nice. Sega Saturn's very popular on anime shows. It features prominently in Evangelion.
2: Mm-hmm. It's... um. Go is associated with sort of deep strategy, isn't it? Because it's, it's, there's something intuitive about it, understanding who has the initiative, where strength is and so on. So it's, it's a very appropriate choice. Um, and, um, I can sort of see that the, I can see the, the sense in, in taking that away from pruning, which is perhaps also associated with, with deep thought, but maybe less, less actively with, with, um, strategy. Um, there's a very funny moment in the scene, funny to me at least, moment in the scene where um, Girin tells Cassilia to pray for, for uh, Sassero's soul and the camera kind of focuses in on her face and um, uh, it's, it's sort of playing up the, the humor of her realizing that, that Girin knows that she had Sassero bumped off.
0: When you were talking about pruning, I thought immediately of Schneisel from Code Geass. Mm. Giren gives off big Schneisel energy. I'm sure that's not accidental, considering how many parallels <laughs> you can draw between Code Geass and First Gundam. Astraea and her children are flown to their new residence under the watchful eye of Zabi loyalists. There they meet Roselsia, Daikun's first wife. Roselsia relegates Astraya to a separate tower. That's where it's in effect a prison. She'll theoretically spend the rest of her days locked up in this tower in the middle of a lake. Roselsia does allow her to spend one night with Casval and Artesia before they'll be parted. So if you look into the backstory, Roselcio was unable to bear Daikun children and hence was passed over in favor of Astraya. I'm sure lust and some sort of romantic attraction on Daikun's part played a role too. But building a dynasty is a smart political move, which I'm sure was on his mind. Again, Yasuhiko is probably pulling on history here. I'm thinking of Anne Boleyn. Anne -hmm. Boleyn has a different fate, but you could draw parallels. There are so many women figures in court that you could compare her to. But the scorned and embittered and passed over wife is a common archetype in a lot of court dramas. Val, you pointed out Dune as well. should mm-hmm. have come to mind because I recently watched the film adaptation and very much well, liked the, it. Um,
2: the, last, uh, the very last line, if I remember rightly, of the first Dune novel is, is actually Jessica commenting on the the interrelationship of wife and concubine, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting note for, for Herbert to, to end those that, that that uh that book i i have i have complex complex views on dune <laughs> that would probably be on the scope of this podcast but uh, yeah yeah it's it's uh, clearly something i think herbert is another writer really really interested in and attuned to history um and um uh it's not surprising that that um uh, yes has a similar kind of sensitivity to what the what the relationships of a man like daikon might be
0: It's not a flattering portrayal, that's for sure. Even though the story demands it, I wish she wasn't so shrill. She comes across as a lot more, as too comic. Like, she's a caricature, and I wish she was more human, like the most of Yasuhiko's characters. I also wanted her to talk more about the second generation of colonists instead of just venting her anger, which might not have been the most appropriate thing for the scene, but it got me thinking about what those conversations would have been like.
2: Yeah, it would be lovely for her just to have one line of something substantive from you know from daikon's thinking that would give us a sense that you know for for all that she's she's an obstacle in the plot and is clearly you know unpleasant and 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 hard to deal with this is someone maybe with real intellectual chops you know it's, it's it's easy to do the imaginative work right to see why why this character might be sympathetic the ova doesn't really give us even just that you know one bit of evidence that one could one could set the imagination running with, which is, is maybe a bit of a shame.
0: It's also interesting that Daikun's concerned with building a dynasty, or at least producing an heir, which says something perhaps about his politics.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, it, it, the, the, the future of Xeon may not have looked particularly democratic, um, whoever, uh, whoever wound up winning the power struggle in, in Munzo in, in uh,
0: 0068. If I, honestly, I want to see what it would look like with Jimbo. I want to see what it looks like with Shimba in charge.
2: Complete anarchy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He'd be a figure like Henry VI. Yeah. Kind of the, the, the ill-made king. Um, yes, yes. Now,
0: it's appropriate that I name-drop the Riles because it's going to factor into our next scene here. Ramba arrives at his family estate only to find it ransacked. Haman, who's been doing some sleuthing, appears out of nowhere and informs him of the situation. The two hatch a plan, then they tell Jimba, who is holed up in his room, armed to the teeth and radiating real boomer energy. Jimba hugs Rambo once he learns of his son's plan to whisk him off to earth. There's a, there's a, like a young picture of Jimba in his office where he's wearing a beret, clearly <laughs> styled after some sort of French revolutionary. I want that side story. I want that manga side story. Not even a fan of Jim, but I'm just real curious about that picture. I would also love to know, we talked about this earlier, what prompts Raul to stay on Munzo? Is it out of loyalty to his home, commitment to his job? Is it because of Haman? Also, why is Haman staying too? It's, it seems that she has a connection with Estrella. At first I thought, oh, they're sisters. They're not because I looked into it. But I thought maybe that's what's keeping Haman here. Or maybe it's out of friendship to... Or maybe it's just there's another reason entirely why she wants to stay, which is fine. I just kind of would like to know. Why (laughs) don't the two of them go with Jimba? It might be compromising the mission, but why don't they go later? And I wish it was that part of their characterization and motivation was made more explicit.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is another of those those places where if you want to do the work, you can... I mean, it's easy to sort of say, well, we can infer from the fact that Ramboral turns up later in the Xeon army that he as we've seen with his subordinates, he did actually have some ideological commitment to the project of independence for, for space, uh, space noids. And, um, uh, uh, you know, he was, he was willing to make some kind of peace with, with serving the, the Zarbis maybe, um, or he was biding his time or whatever you want to say, but, but the, the manga and the OVA aren't doing that work for us. Um, and it is, it is slightly mystifying, um, the characterization of Jimba I and mean, Jimba is, I think, presumably meant to come across as entirely disappointing. And I guess that's to help set up the way that the, this is the figure who's going to play a role shaping the way that Casval and uh, um, Artesia remember um, what's happened to them and the the, you know, the way they think of their place in the world. Uh, Jimba, rather than Rambo,
0: Estraea says goodbye to her children. She informs them of the plan and stresses that they'll reunite on Earth. Again, watching this scene as a father, as a tear-streaked Artesia pleads with her mother not to leave, landed emotionally in a way that I have trouble quantifying, and that I was a little surprised about too. I also thought this is a smart bit of writing with Astraea telling Artesia that when the moon completes 100 revolutions, they'll be together again. It's also in the manga as well. Not only does it give Artesia the false hope she needs, but it gives her trauma narrative structure so when we check in with Artesia in a few years, she'll still be counting the moon's revolutions, and that gives it, there's a satisfying sense of structure there that I liked.
2: And this is the most emotionally heightened bit, I think, of the, the whole OVA episode. Um, uh, it, it, it works well in the manga, and it works well here. Uh, the, the lunar promise is particularly neat in that it, it, it also ties in with the way that Astraya has been telling Artesia about, here are things you can see on Earth. The moon is also something you can see on Earth. And of course, you actually have to be on Earth for the moon to be the moon in the way that it, it is. Um, it waxes and wanes and it shows particular face to Earth and so on. If you're in a space colony, it's not going to do that. Um, and that, this is setting up the end of the episode. But it's, it's also a really nice kind of consistent tie-in with what um, Astra has been saying. Um, there are shots here which focus on Casval. Um, so again we're maybe partially f- focalised through Artesia here but we're also definitely getting Caswell's point of view he clearly doesn't believe the promise about the moon, uh, he's old enough to, to understand and emotionally intelligent enough to understand that, that Astraya is saying this to get Artesia to go along with the, with, with the plan and he's clearly really pained by what what's happening um, uh, but there's a darker edge if you think about the character's future lurking around the implications mm-hmm. of this scene because what we're seeing here is, is that a big formative experience for Casval is seeing an adult, a sympathetic, close adult, lying to a child. And Shah is going to do a lot of lying, some of it to children, um, uh, through, through the rest of what we'll see in, in other parts of the Universal Century.
0: I just looked it up because I was curious. One revolution mm-hmm. around... The, one revolution... The moon revolving around the earth is about 27 days so if you do the math that's about seven and a half years i'm sure she was mm-hmm. just pulling a symbolic symbolic number that <laughs> yeah. seems like a lot of time but not as much time as i thought
2: mm-hmm. there's something quite fairy tale about and because it's a tale that she's telling a child there's something quite fairy tale about this this promise of the the lunar months but there's also something quite fairy tale about astria the mother trapped in the tower that that you know, both of them leave behind um uh the and it's it's possible if you want to um, to imagine that being part of the way that we are experiencing this as their reminiscence the, the, This is Castel remembers you know his mother in the tower. these are the images that kind of are are there for him
0: yeah the next morning, with a lot of Panache, Haman, disguised as a federation soldier, arrives at the tower in a gun tank to retrieve Casval and Atasia. We have our first and only new mech this episode. I'm not going to bungle the name here. I'm going to give you the technical name. The RTX 65 gun tank early type designed by Kimitoshi Yamane, the Cowboy Bebop ship designer. Any thoughts here? PMC, before I tell my thoughts, I want to give you the floor. You usually have solid thoughts when we talk about mech design.
1: Yeah, I think this one's interesting because it plays up some of the bits from the... The gun tank exists very much in a, in a toyetic zone with the treads and the guns and the gun hands. I think what's interesting about this one is I think it does successfully tie into some, like a little bit of the militarism subplot mm-hmm. of the origin because it is clearly focused on a sort of, uh, you know, anti infantry it's meant mm. to fight what existed previously not what exists concurrently or even trying to predict the future uh, and then the other thing is as i would say uh i think it is an interesting touch obviously it is used for uh you know sort of a, a cinematic appeal to have the helmet open and uh, castfall and artesia wave goodbye from from out top of it i was trying to think of like why would it do that and i think <laughs> The best answer, and I don't think it requires a lot of work to do it, is to think about that idea of uh, what it's even doing here in Munzo, which is often riot control yeah. or shows of force. So having that display does, I think, make sense and informs the design.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and there are, there are um, brief sequences earlier in the episode where we see gun tanks being used to suppress a riot and, and there are some really good um, civilian's eye level um, shots that, that kind of capture the sense that this machine might be completely terrifying if you're just someone on the street with with you know, maybe a paving stone or a Molotov cocktail. Uh, it's implied that that they, they you know they're running people over with these things. And um, uh, have you have you guys seen Hathaway's Flash? The first the first of the Hathaways. We yeah, have both not actually. Okay, well that that film is. Um, it's shot like a kaiju film at point. So like the, like the mobile suits are like giant, like giant monsters in the cityscape. And there's quite a lot of sort of ground level human eye, um, uh, 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 whole sequences really, um, which is very effective. And, and, and you can sort of see a kernel of that, that kind of, um, that kind of presentation is, is going on here. It's something that Gundam d- does elsewhere, of course. And uh, we mentioned earlier, the sense that the disparity between humans and the weapon systems that they're, they're using, but, um, uh, so, in that use, the gun tank I think functions pretty well in this episode. It, it is presumably intentionally not a terribly interesting design because it's you know it's it's a it's a mass-produced um, uh, battlefield and 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 maybe personnel control device. Um, it's not meant to be the star of the origin, uh, but yeah, I, I I quite like it, uh, and I like the ways in which it, both in the design and also the way it's presented in this episode, um, put the stress on tank. So it's a gun tank. Um, uh, and that's,
0: that's quite fun. Yeah, I agree. Aesthetically, it doesn't have too much going for it. But from an evolutionary standpoint, I like mm. it. I'm always interested to see how technology progresses and changes over time, and it's neat to see the predecessor to the gun tank, which in and of itself is a very iconic design. This is mm. something I really like about the Star Wars prequels as well. Like The aesthetics of those movies are, in my opinion, spot on, and it's really fun to see what the predecessor to the X-Wing was and how, I guess... The, that very iconic design was de-aged over time, and you could see just like what influenced future designs too.
2: Yes, and it must be an, an, an interesting challenge as a designer to, to here's, here's this iconic thing. Where did it come from?
0: <laughs> yeah. Now you had an interesting question for us here, Thal.
2: Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, what what do you make of the 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 way that the origin gently tweaks um, the history of mobile suit development and and other aspects of of a first Gundam.
0: I like how the Gundam, the mobile suits are on full display at the start of the war. I like how the Federation has suits at the beginning. I think it makes more sense. I think the Federation, being a hegemic world power, would be mass-producing these suckers at an astonishing rate from early in the war. <laughs> I think that works better with Gundam's themes, even though I know why first Gundam made that creative choice at the outset. Mm. It makes the Gundam more special at the beginning and more vital to the Federation quote-unquote cause
1: yeah i think the the family tree of uh of mobile suits that were given in first Gundam* the tv show is that it is from labor from doing work in space mm. and that is acknowledged in yeah with the zaku one right with the zaku one mm. and, and mm. like that whatever that pro, i'm sure will one of the episodes of be available focus on it the one they're doing the tests in the uh the, the seeker mm. yes yes uh but even beyond that you know seeing the gun tank and other uh you know and that family type i think it really speaks to yaz being a student of history and saying that there is you you cannot look at history and say that advanced technology or new technology would not immediately be put to military application yeah mm-hmm. it is just <laughs> it is preposterous yeah. that you you wouldn't see it more why wi- and maybe not the most effective version sure but that you wouldn't see attempts at it and i think the retweaking to emphasize why something was more effective rather than why didn't they do it at all. I think it's just, yeah. um, you know, it, it makes sense. It is also unsurprising given history.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it totally fits. I mean, if you think about the, not not the drone in, as a general idea, but the advent of cheap, uh, portable, small drones, um, you know, immediately they, they've been pressed into use in, in Syria and now Ukraine. And so on. So yeah, it's it's not um, it's not hard to see the the real life um, parallels. I know it's um, I can understand the instincts of those who would like all of the U C Gundam animated material to line up very neatly. And the problems of say the way that in Thunderbolt um, the the technology level in Thunderbolt seems really quite high compared to to First Gundam, which is more or less happening at the same time, and that sort of thing. So I I sympathise with that instinct but personally I quite enjoy the way that Gundam is pretty relaxed about this stuff um, and you mentioned earlier people working to keep the lore of Star Wars consistent and while I'm sure there are people involved in that sort of thing with, with Gundam, it does come across as a franchise that's a bit more at ease with yeah. with just things being inconsistent and, and of course that is a natural state of stories is here are ten different things I heard about King Arthur um, it's, it, it's only when stories become intellectual property that that you know the, the we, we live in a world where we think that's the natural state of, of well-known stories but actually the natural state of well-known stories is that everyone everyone possesses them and everyone possesses a slightly different version and um uh you know it, in, in that sense it's, it's quite fun to see yas's you know yas's uh tweaks to, to to what's working and, and it is really neat to see you know if they have gun tanks on this colony, what would they use them for? Well, of course they would use them to suppress riots. Like that's, that's exactly what you would, you know, look, just look at the machine. (laughs) Like like you, you you wouldn't want to be in the way of whatever's on those arms. Um, yeah.
0: Even the volumes that come before the prequel volumes, I like how there's more gun tanks on the white base. It makes for Mm. more dynamic battles and we get, Mm. we get a sense of more of the personality of these various pilots on the white base. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. As they make their way to the docking bay the men Haman paid to drive-slash-pilot the gun tank get aggressively lecherous, to which Haman responds with a well-timed kick to the gut and punch to the face. At this point, the they pilots, the drivers, resume their frantic and destructive drive through the metropolis. Meanwhile, Rawl's convoy, feigning a flat tire, blocks the advance of a convoy of tanks sent to deal with the runaway gun tank. I like the A-team energy here. It is fun when a plan comes together. That's really my only note for this scene. It's it's good.
2: Yeah, I know. A, bo- a lot of what happens here feels like it comes from a genealogy of very two-fisted sort of military adventure stories. The and Ral um pretending to get a flat tire in front of a co- column of tanks um, and um, really hamming it up as he pretends that that it can't be fixed and so on. It, that that's quite quite good fun. Uh, the and the the letterous, the letterous gun tank pilots. it's 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 not particularly annoying it does feel a bit sort of um uh it comes from a for a lineage of oh this woman's very attractive but she's also really strong uh so that's okay Uh, the 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 lineage from which it comes is not a not a lineage of kind of um topoi that 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 i feel particularly happy about but whatever um uh and it's nice to have events moving again i mean i think we we mentioned earlier the sense that the middle of the, uh, this episode is maybe a little disjointed in a way that is not immediately effective, and now, now there's a clear kind of through line to what's happening, and that's, that's quite fun.
0: But their victory lap is short-lived. Soon, a wall of opposing gun tanks appears at the end of the street, blocking their advance. Kosval, unbeknownst to Haman, takes control of the guns, and with perfect accuracy, begins to dispatch the enemy vehicles with ease. In the absence of interiority, the decision to frame Casval, Shar, as a military ace from boyhood is a mistake, I think. Thal, you did point out some moments of failure for the young daikun. This scene, though, comes across as commercial and cheap, a tactic meant to placate fans and sell merchandise. While I'm not completely sold on his characterization of the manga, it's ba- balanced by Yasuhiko's examination of Shar's trauma. Motivations and failures. But we certainly don't get that in episode one. And I suspect we won't get that as the OVA goes forward. So for me, this is more style than substance. The real, the real bit with Char that really irked me in the manga was the fact that he set off the one year war. Like that part is like grown <laughs> worthy. Like I mentioned before, that colored my opinion of Char's mm. characterization going forward. Even though, as PMC and Megan pointed out last episode, there's a lot of, or two episodes ago, there's a lot of
2: good stuff there. hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely have have a few few thoughts on that. P- PMC, before I start talking again, what 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 do you think?
1: So you know what, I have two points here, which meant that I didn't really bump on this scene in the same way that hmm. Steven did. One of those is I mentioned before that these gun tanks are viewed as sort of um, you know anti infantry. I strongly feel that the Federation officers, present on Munzo never thought there would be. Gun tank on gun tank violence. They didn't plan for it. Didn't think it would happen. Didn't think it would happen at that close range, uh, and just never planned for it. Mm. Much in the same way that the helmet—probably not, you know, not a helmet meant to withstand <laughs> the the mm. shells from the gun tank. They just never thought this would happen. Mm. Like to me, when I watched this, the the part of the part of Shard's journey that I really experienced. Was a willingness to pull the trigger,
3: right? Mm, mm, That
1: he is mm. already at this age ready to kill. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Unquestionably. Was it difficult or a sign of skill to have pulled that trigger and destroyed those gun tanks? I don't think so. I viewed it as shooting fish in a barrel. You know, (laughs) I I can't really imagine it it was that difficult. But again, that's just sort of like my my glance at the military technology. Mm.
2: Mm. It's, it's, yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, I haven't gone and read the the Gundam wiki page on the early type gun <laughs> tanks, so I'm not going to claim to have any definitive knowledge about this, but I also would would say I'm a bit sceptical about caring about being definitive. But if you look at the early type gun tank, the big artillery piece guns look like they're meant to be used for long range bombardment and maybe for shooting, um, you know, other armoured vehicles. Um, but they probably, yes, would never anticipate very much contact con- conflict. Between gun tanks because you know, they're they're built and operated by one side. Um, there's no sign that they allow the Munzo Autonomous Republic militia to field anything that's particularly heavyweight. You know, R- Ral is driving around in a in a lightly armored you know armored car, a- APC sort of thing. And I th- yeah, I kind of agree with you about pulling the trigger. I think it's it's a, an effective scene in as much as it conveys this this is the moment where Casval looks out the window and says. These people are my enemy. They're they're my enemy. They're Artesia's enemy. They're everyone's enemy, which is is an interesting way of framing it. Um, and I'm going to shoot them. You know, I'm I'm and and it's all a piece with the self-possession that we saw earlier and the way that he is this kind of disconcerting um, a child who's already been through quite a lot this at, at this point. And I like the way that they layer astria's promise to Artesia over. This footage. We're, we're given a, this scene is a bit more focalized through Artesia. We're given Artesia's perspective that this is really horrifying, um, and her brother is 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 one of the people carrying out this kind of horrifying violence, and that's quite effective. Um, the fact that Caspary is consistently kind of landing hits on these on these other gun tanks is maybe maybe pushing a bit it a bit. I do like the way that the displays, the targeting display in the gun tank, is pretty low resolution. It's pretty janky. Uh, and that's a nice kind of touch of the screens in first Gundam are going to be better than this. So here's here's the early type gun tank. Are its sensors great? No, no, they're kind of rubbish actually. And and if you if you operate one of these in, in combat, you're going to be kind of peering at this kind of blotchy black and white screen. That's that's a kind of fun de, de, uh, degeneration of technology as as we were talking about earlier. Um, and there's also there's at least one shot very close up of uh, the arm of the gun tank that Castile is, is operating, taking fire, which is a very M.S. glue, battle-scarred, mechanical-armour sort of um, uh, military-fiction shot, uh, and, and pretty effective at that, if that's what you want the, the Origin OVA to be.
0: An irate Dozel orders the Federation soldiers not to fire on the gun tank, as Daikun's children are in. They disregard his concerns after they kick it higher up the ladder. Giren calms him down, over the phone and urges dozel not to take any action i gotta say dozel's apoplectic rage ripping his stitches out is a really fun psych gag i feel like dozel's going to be used for a lot of these psych gags going forward
3: it, it is very
2: good and uh, it, it's 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 a great idea from the manga executed really well in the adaptation he, he bleeds on the soldiers that he's looming over which is which is great um uh and, um, and earlier on in the episode, he's, he's banged his injured hands together after the after the bombing in in anger, uh, and that too is this sort of uh, Dozel and pain are clearly clearly closely acquainted in Yas's mind. Um, uh, and there's a, there's a very broad comedy piece of music accompanying his arrival. This kind of lumbering um, uh, piece of music to instruct you to grasp that this is this is this is comedy, which I like and it's effective. Um, but I think it is typical of the tendency of the episode. To uh, to to be quite single-toned, um, like if you're watching a, a a scene, usually there's a tone that it's, it's going for. Um, uh, it's generally doing one kind of unmixed uh, thing, and you know, that, that, that that can be great. And and there are plenty of anime I really like where you know the whole thing is pretty dedicated to to a particular tone or idea. But it is um, it's maybe an idea I'll come back to later. But I think that that scene with Zozel is a really good example of how. Um, there's usually exactly one thing happening and the music is there to tell you what that thing is and how you should feel about it. Um, and sometimes that that works really well and sometimes it feels a little bit um, directed, uh, if, that, if that makes sense.
0: Using the smoke to cloud their escape, Haman and the kids jump off the damaged gun tank before, Ava style, the gun tanks unleash a barrage hmm. of firepower, destroying it. <laughs> the escape follows as planned. Jimba, Artesia... Casval and lucifer are snuck into a cargo container as you use melodious melodious voice caps the episode Casval and artesia gaze out into the vastness of space as munzo their home gets smaller and smaller i really like this ending
2: scene here yeah i like i have one or two more things to say about the the last bits of the plot but the the, the ending sequence i think it's really really solid um uh, the 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 song is is fantastic as as you as you covered on the last episode this is a really really nice piece of music um, which exactly captures and if you're going to go for a tone it's a great great tone very suiting you know this works um, and the it really helps that we haven't seen the outside of the space colony like the whole episode the yeah. whole episode since loom has all been on mundo and this is the moment where we like casval and artesia experience that kind of and I don't know how plausible this actually is. I mean, one imagines Dycon's children probably would have been outside the colony. But, let, you know, I, in the moment watching it, that's not what I was thinking. And I think that's you know, it's, uh, that's an unfair um, thing. It, it's a really nice moment. And it, it gets us to watch them conversing about, you know, that's the moon and that's Earth. That, that's where we're going. And that's the thing you have to watch waxing and waning. Um, yeah, yeah. PMC.
1: Oh, I I didn't really have too
2: much to add. Oh, okay, to that. sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, then, then maybe I can uh, scoot back and um, uh, the escape goes as planned. But partly it goes as planned because Chryssilia turns up and and says to Raul and Hamon, you know, I could have every ship stopped and researched in a way that strongly implies that she completely understands what's just happened. But then she doesn't, and um, you know, presumably this is, I think. Maybe. This is this is the chicelia we have at the end of the episode that she's scheming she's scheming around behind Giren and, and Deguin. Um and um uh, uh she makes the choice not to take um Casval and Artesia into custody. And again it's impossible to, to to watch that without thinking of the fact that that Casval is eventually going to kill her. And it is implied that Ral is probably going to be military custody for a little while explaining himself etc etc um but yeah that's it's it's a really interesting little moment there that kaisile turns up and doesn't uh, doesn't stop the escape
0: yeah it speaks to some of the future power dynamics between some of these characters
2: yeah yeah so do do you guys have other things you want to add on the the texture of the episode because i had some kind of closing thoughts but but um
0: yeah, I'd say I want to. I want to hear your culminating thoughts here, Thal. I, I will say so. At the at, the, I have now reached the end of episode one of the Origin. I am. I'm satisfied. There's a lot more. I wish the Origin did as a, a singular OVA, and I think it stumbles into some of those classic prequel issues. But it's it's far more restrained than the Star Wars prequels mm. in a lot of respects, and similar cinematic prequels. Unfortunately, mm. the only one that's coming to mind is The Hobbit. I'm giving very predictable prequels here, but there are others out there, and I feel like it doesn't dive into that territory. When the writing is political, I think it's at its smartest. The characterization origin, by and large, is one of its weaker elements, and I hope that future installments will build on that. Hopefully, the origin will go a long ways to endearing me, perhaps, to Char's depiction and I hope some characters like Sailor aren't left by the wayside, because I do miss that framing device of hers in the manga that's not present here.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's um, it's funny you mentioned the Star Wars prequels because I saw those without having seen the the originals. You know, growing up in a house with no television, mm, um, yeah, uh, um, meant that I never, I never saw the. Uh, and I, in fact, I still haven't seen A New Hope. I've seen the other two um, the exactly. trilogy, but I just. Uh, I'm not good at catching up with um with with these things. Um yeah, and I i thought it would be interesting to compare the experience of watching First Gundam, you know, the original 1979, 1980 TV show, to to watching The Origin. Uh and that is an apples to oranges comparison. I think you know, the first thing we have to say is is it's this isn't isn't necessarily a fair comparison. And the comparison is not necessarily about which one's better. Um I just thought it'd be interesting to see, like, what would that tell us? And I thought, um, Uh, there's way more felt tensions in in watching the original Gundam in my my view so a simple example of this through a lot of especially the first you know half of the show is Amaro piloting the Gundam and fighting well like a good thing because it means his friends on the White Base survive the refugees on the White Base survive Amaro survives Um, uh, you know and, and, and because Zeon as they are portrayed are not you know the Federation is clearly inept and unpleasant but Zeon is also portrayed as a pretty, you know, pretty unpleasant state. Ten episodes into First Gundam, uh, well, just just beyond ten episodes into First Gundam, we have the, the Gama funeral scene. You don't, you don't have people lined up shouting "Zig Zeon without kind of grasping what they're going for there. Or is it bad that Amaro is piloting the Gundam? Because you can see that it's, it's taking bits of his character away, like he's becoming less of a person and it's traumatising him. And we can see that Bright and the other crew members at points are pressuring him into it and Bright is physically coercing him um, you know and the show doesn't the show's kind of incoherent on that point and the result is actually a really interesting tension like it's it's really interesting watching it and you hear the exciting music playing and you think but you know Amro was 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 clearly traumatized like two scenes ago (laughs) like what do you want me to think um or similarly you know is Shah a cool character or like an evil and callous one and well i don't know let's leave evil aside but he's definitely both cool and callous like once you see him lure gama to his death you grasp this is this is someone who who um you know is a is a real piece of work um though also like wow isn't he cool that mask is cool that mobile suit is cool and so on um that's that's a problem that first gundam gives us as a a first time viewer uh just like you know what is shard's relationship with gama um why does he turn on him? that's a mystery for most of the show re-rewatching the show recently with with someone who hadn't seen it before was a really good way to kind of re experience this and i'm not to be clear suggesting that first gundam is this incredibly polished masterpiece or that it's it's really subtle I and mean, this is this is not pat labor 2 um uh, in which there are these incre- incredibly layered sort of uh, um uh, loyalties and 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 so on um I mean, it's it's an effective entertaining toy selling war story um and in fact some of the tensions which make first gundam so so interesting to watch may well come from the fact that it was cancelled it's 43 episodes long it didn't have time to kind of reconcile and, and neatify itself Though i think some of them also just come from the way that that, that it was made and and tomino's tomino's approach to, to making things but there, there's definitely um uh, a sense of mystery and tension in in First Gundam, with a lot of it, even when it isn't all, all working properly. And The Origin is like a sharp contrast to that. It's, it's a lavish, coherent, planned thing adapted from one man's, you know, really thought through, decade long enterprise of re examining First Gundam. And most of the tension in this episode of The Origin is the tension of plot. Uh, are Casval and-, and Artesia going to be able to escape? in fact we know they're going to be able to escape that's the point um we we know who these people are going to be how are they going to escape so how are the characters that we're recognizing going to play a role in their escape so there's little sense of internal contradiction in most of the scenes uh think again of the music accompanying dozel or the the way the camera focuses on in on cassilia's Casilia's face uh in that moment that is yeah there's a kind of black humor in in the the Girin knows that Cayselia killed Sassero, and here's here's caselia realizing that Girin knows that, that Cayselia killed Castle, and that you know, being confronted with that knowledge is is kind of um satisfying and funny in, in in a kind of bleak way. Um but it's often kind of one note and 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 lacking in 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 those tensions. Um but there's a partial exception to that, which is the the emotional charge of of astria's promise with Artesia, and that you know, that's um uh, you know, it may be relatively simple, but it's pretty effective. Uh, and um, uh, I'd echo Steve's uh, Stephen's remarks. I'm I'm not a parent, but uh, it's it's easy to imagine how how that must feel um, uh, as a parent. And uh, you know, we're, we're all children, right? We can all we can all imagine ways in which that that must come across. So that you know, the, I don't want this to be a condemnation, and that's not even necessarily a complaint. I think you know, the, the, while the origin is often playing one note, it's often also a really good note. Um, uh, reservations about the 3D, 3D CG aside, this was a really enjoyable sort of military political adventure story, um, with some really satisfying resonances with, with the rest of the Universal Century. Uh, and I, I think if someone had lots of, res- you know, if they weren't strapped for cash and they had the time and they were a reader of manga, my first recommendation would probably still be read the manga, you know, and, and, and actually, although I, would always make a case for first Gundam the manga as a whole probably is the most coherent version of, of, of the original Gundam and, and there's a lot of strength in that I think the adaptation has has some of that strength and it has some interesting virtues and there are ways in which the adaptation changes away from the manga that we've discussed and again mentioning those is not a criticism I mean if you were just going to replicate the manga exactly why bother with the adaptation in the first place except to sell more Gumbler um, uh, so so I guess that's where I come down Like, I, I think from my tastes, um uh I'm happier in the world of in the in in the world of of slight incoherence being being the price you pay for for these interesting tensions. But I did enjoy revisiting this. It was it was really nice. It's been lovely to have the chance to do so. Um and uh yeah, I, I would never say don't watch this. I think yeah, you know, I think it's a really, really interesting uh, exercise in, in adaptation. So that's what I think. Um Uh do 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 fill in or respond if you've got to.
0: My thoughts are very similar to yours. I've been critical of Tomino's inconsistent writing in the past, and I probably will be in the future, Mm. but those inconsistencies often produce moments of abstraction that are inherently complex, which I really like, Mm. and I agree Mm. with you. The OVA in particular has a commercial purpose and sheen that levels levels Mm -hmm. those off very significantly that I do miss. Yaku, Yasuhiko is a more consistent writer overall, but there are moments of poetic abstraction with Tomino that make him the artist he is, and I do miss those elements in adaptations of First Gundam.
2: And I wonder if even the chaos of the production of First Gundam has something to do with it as well, just that the you know that the this is something it's it, the first Gundam as a TV show was like a train being, being run on track that was being laid down in front of it, you know, as the, as the train goes along. Um, and, and as well as Domino's writing simply the chaos of production, and, and the origin is the opposite of that. It's, it's a really, really honed um, blue chip prestige product. So, from just from the point of view of the commercial history of the franchise, there's something really kind of uh, striking and, and fruitful, I think, in, 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 in comparing the two.
0: I actually prefer Tomino when he's even more, even though I'm very critical of him, (laughs) I prefer when he's more inconsistent and more abstract. I'm looking forward to visiting some of his later works that I haven't Mm -hmm. seen that are allegedly off the rails. I'm not even just referring to brain powered here. I want to check out some of his or more incoherent writing and
2: stuff. One of the, um, uh, shows that's been on my mind recently. And last episode, Megan mentioned the, um, the early full digital period in which anime was being made for the first time across the board uh digitally so they weren't using sales and film anymore and how you know a great many anime from that period just don't look that great especially tv anime because they're being they were being made at low resolutions with very garish colors um and and they were still being made for crt tvs um <laughs> uh <clears throat> and I'm going to mention a, a, a more obscure Tomino title. Overman King Gainer. Um, I was going to ask really you about that, because it's on my yeah, radar. Yeah, it's a really interesting watch. In some ways, again, has some of that incoherency. The way it ends has this kind of openness. Um, but it has tremendous energy. It has really, really fun ideas. And... And this is not, I think, specifically to do with Tamoro, though maybe to do with the people he associated with himself with and the people who are working with... It uh, absolutely has to do with the people on the sh- on the staff. That show is from 2002, 2003. It looks fantastic. It, it scales up really well. Um, the colours are on point. Um, the designs are lovely. Like, it, it was clearly possible to make uh, a really good-looking TV anime um, in the early 2000s, and uh, I think an under-recognised achievement on the part of of that the team who made that show is that they, while other people were making Gundam Seed, which does not look great um, uh, in 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 the modern world of HD, it still doesn't look that great if you if you if you um, uh, put it into 69 and mess around with the colours in the in the HD re- reworked version, uh, and over the, over uh, over in the corner elsewhere, Overman King Gainer is is just nailing it. So the the lesser known corners of of those works can be really interesting places to explore. But yeah, I, I've I've kind of taken us a bit off topic there. So sorry, for, <laughs> um, sorry for for um, uh, wandering
0: PMC. Before we wrap this up, do you have any like uh, so you reached the episode the end of episode one of the origin? What are your thoughts going forward?
1: I think the I think it's at its best when it's recounting history and just allowing us to draw all those parallels, like mm. the you know the mm. funeral, the con you know the confrontations i think when it uh it is very hit and miss with intentionally sounding notes the artesia goodbye Mm -hmm. is great but some of the some of the comedic bits feel like they could still have that significance of history the dozel bit i think is a really good one to to single out because i feel like we should be more aware or it would be better to understand Dozel's character reacting to the news that Girin's gonna let these kids die. Mm. Like that yeah. is a yeah. plot beat that like yeah. we kind of see happen, but it doesn't color Dozel's journey in the way that say Casilia is clearly colored by Girin being like, yeah. I know what you did.
2: Yeah, totally. That's a really that's a really astute point, I think. And 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 it again, if you if you're interested in drawing those links between the different bits of, of Universal Century Gundam, who Dozel is and how he behaves is important because yes. you know, Dozel is that big, kind of brawny, big Zam piloting figure in 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 First Gundam. Um, uh, who you know, the distinctive thing is that he's he's trying to protect, and and he's also he's Minerva's father. You know, it's where Minerva's abbey comes from, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of extra UC material in the future <laughs> yeah. about her, or at least featuring her in the case right. of Zeta. Uh, so so you know, there's, there's totally. Grounds for sort of saying we, we we kind of want to know what what Dozel the 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 yeah. kind of not wholly malignant bruiser of the Zhabis feels about this moment, while also registering that it's kind of funny that this oh, guy turns up. yeah, Zarbis. yeah, absolutely. So you know, I, I, it sounds <laughs> yes. like
1: it all had us in stitches. So, mm. <laughs> uh,
2: <you laughs> yes, know, yes, yeah, unlike Dozal. So yeah, you
1: know, but yeah. I, but I think that's an example of uh, what we're what we're saying when we're complaining that something is one note, right? Yeah. Like mm, that's the mm, they're, mm. they're There is so much opportunity here, and you're not going to be able to do everything all the time. But like Mm. that's low-hanging fruit that I Mm. would like
0: to have seen picked. Or even like the question of is he bothered by the fact that's two children
2: or Daikun's children? Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would touch on an issue that's at issue issue in Castle's conversation with Casilia, when Castle is standing on his family name. You know, to Castle, the important thing about Castle is not that you know shouldn't be mistreated because it's bad to mistreat people it's it's that he's cast full and daikon and, and um uh you know that that that's who he is and that's why he deserves particular treatment i i think is what will or at least mm-hmm. that's why he's making the argument in, in that scene
0: before we formally wrap this up i have to get a temperature check here thal Cuckoo's Done. you're gonna watch it in theaters if it comes to theaters <laughs> in the uk
2: i probably will i mean um uh, my understanding is this will also have three DCG Mecca, and which always calls me a little bit on on these things. But um, it would be a rare and exciting thing um, to to have a uh, to have screenings or a screening of a um, a new Gundam film. I mean that doesn't come along every every year. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, um, uh, I, I I may well turn up for that. Uh, just uh, if anything, out of curiosity, I, I'm not going to. I mean, my my attitude with Gundam. New Gundam material is is usually not that I'm going in with high expectations, but just I'm <laughs> curious about what's going to happen. This this is how I feel about the Witch from Mercury, right? You know, it's yeah. not Gundam is a many varied thing. Large swathes of it are not aimed at me. I mean, it has many different audiences, um, and um, the the thing is to to go in prepared to enjoy what there is to enjoy and not to worry if it turns out to be not great. But I hope you know, I really hope the, the Kukuras Doan Project turns out fantastic. It's an odd I, everyone, I think, experiences it as an odd choice, but I'm, I'm completely ready for, for the people making it to convince us that that, that was, of all things, you know, the, exactly the right thing to do.
0: It could very be- well be the best theatrical Gundam experience, maybe barring Char's counterattack. It has the potential because mm-hmm. there's not much competition as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting Gundam films, but there's there's not many Gundam films where you you, you leave thinking that you know that was a really significant achievement. Um, yeah, uh, and of course, many of them are compilations or or um, uh, well, even F ninety one has that kind of compiled quality, doesn't it? Because it's sort of cut cut from, from bits of a project. Even though you know there are bits of F ninety one I really really like. But
0: well, Faliarcus, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. I I loved our conversation. It reminds me of not to single out your nationality, but it reminds me when I went at Lincoln College or studying for a master's program. I did not go, I did not graduate from Oxford listeners, but I spent a summer in there <laughs> studying. It reminds me, it reminded me of my old graduate school discussions.
2: So thank you for that. Well, thank you. That's, that's, that's high praise. Um, I, I've certainly really, really enjoyed, um, enjoyed it. And it, it's, it's been great to have a chance to kind of go back to and really look at one of these, one of these episodes, and, um, and a real pleasure talking to you both. I mean, really, really fun to, to throw ideas around and, and um, just have the chance to to uh, you know, reflect on this material in, in a kind of more careful way. So thank you. Thank you. It's been great fun.
0: Now, do you want to promote anything? I know you said you haven't updated your blog in a while, but feel free. <laughs> the your floor is yours to promote whatever you'd like.
2: You can find the blog if you if you search for three hundred and twenty seven robots, three two seven robots. If if you want to. And if you if you want a, a place to look up like where and how did the anime industry transition to um, away from sales and film or or, you know, the history of aspect ratios in anime, in, in, in basic lay, laypersons terms, I think the summaries there are, are pretty good and they're they're not just based on my research, but also, you know, actual people who really do research and are based in Japan tweeting at me and saying like interesting post here's some more details um uh, mainly you can find me on twitter at uh at sign th uh if if you want to follow me um you may not want to follow me i tweet about all kinds of things um sometimes i manage them to, to make them interesting or amusing <laughs> sometimes i don't um uh um but yeah i'm I i do not have tons of things to promote uh as I said earlier i mean in many ways I see my role in the ecosystem as being uh uh you know an, an a node for information and a and a point of contact more than more than uh you know making any great claims to to be um uh so you might want to read my followers list a uh, followed list my followed list and <laughs> look at who I'm following not all of them will be of interest to you um but 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 um uh I do follow quite a lot of people who tweet very interesting things about. 80s animation or um, uh, translated interviews from old anime magazines and that sort of thing. And, and also other people. Yes. As I said, you'll, you'll find all kinds in my, my followed list. Um, So yes, it's not really a promotion, but um, I exist. If (laughs) if people want to look me up, Um, uh, uh, but mostly if listeners have made it to this point, you know, thank you so much for, for, for putting up with, with so many of my thoughts and I hope some of them have been interesting.
1: Well, if you want to find those links as always you can probably find a link to 327 robots as well as to the twitter account i think he's a great twitter follow (laughs) i know since we've been doing things i've been following more people trying to infiltrate anime twitter yeah i've been trying to drag pmc
0: into gundam twitter
1: everyone's been great so i've had a positive experience so far uh you know what could possibly go wrong that's because you
0: haven't talked about char's counterattack online
1: (laughs) maybe that might you might be right about that now if you do want to if you do want to post nice things online and i'm a huge fan of that uh i would love for you to post nice reviews on your favorite podcatching services your itunes your spotify any of those if you want to support us directly we do have a patreon patreon.com slash giant robot fm there you can find various supplemental material uh, we put out episode episodes where we talk about things that we've been up to ghibli movies cycling whatever catches your fancy uh, we also have a kind of premium side podcast called simulator where we give treatment to mecha video games that we do to mecha anime right now we have our first episode up with uh, the first armored core for the PlayStation coming up on the 25th anniversary of that guy. Credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag Bane Fretzel
0: for the music. And as our closing note, if there are any fans, like committed and diehard fans of either Sosero, Clamp, or Tachi, Please feel free to reach out and let us know, because I, I would love to hear from you. Yeah, you must be a veritable Gundam fan.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah.